Good morning. Welcome, everyone, to March 20th, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School. Joined today by uh, Catherine Blunt, Meghna, Emily, Jeremiah, Brandon Doe, Serafina, and as always by Dr. Anthony Montero. Actually, today also marks, actually yesterday, marked one year of the free school being on the Facebook live stream. And uh, it's been an interesting experience. So I hope we won't be continuing for another year. Hopefully we'll be back in person. Although when we go back in person, we do have plans to continue uh, doing a live stream component. Uh, but that being said, today's uh, free school, we're going to have a bit of an announcement and discussion about an upcoming event we're going to do commemorating the independence of Bangladesh and the centenary of Bangladesh's founding father, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. And then we're going to have a reading of, uh, of the current chapter of Du Bois's Russia and America. So we'll begin with uh, Meghna saying a few words about the Bangladesh event. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, before I speak about the event, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Bangladesh and the Bangladeshi struggle for liberation, what it means today, and um, uh, its connection to this idea of democracy, specifically uh, Du Bois' Du Bois's framework in color and democracy. He's basically talking about how um, the disenfranchisement of colonial peoples and the, de the um, dependence of empires on uh, on colonies, what effect this has on making the world less democratic, more poor, and, and denying the strivings of the people for freedom at home and abroad. Um, so I just wanted to begin with this quote. He says um, in chapter four of Color and Democracy, mounting pressure of popular demand for democratic methods must be counted on throughout the world as popular intelligence rises. Its greatest successful opponent today is not fascism, whose extravagance has brought its own overthrow, but rather imperial colonialism, where the disenfranchisement of the mass of people has reduced millions to tyrannical control without any vestige of democracy. Uh, so I think this is very profound that it's actually imperial colonialism. And by extension, what we see today, the, the Western American led empire, which is the biggest obstacle to, to democracy and the strivings of the people, even though they say, you know, it's the opposite, we are the forces of democracy. Um, and this, this focus on imperialism and colonialism really proves how wrong that is. Um, and so I just want to talk a little bit about the history of Bangladesh, um, because it really is a story of the strivings of the people interrupted and denied. But for us to understand what needs to be done today, there has to be an understanding we need to complete this democratic process. Um, and so, I mean, first of all, I think the first thing that's important to know about Bangladesh is that a lot of the anti-colonial history of India um, that culminated in the, in the freedom struggle, a lot of it was in what is today Bangladesh. In 1757, the infamous Battle of Plassey uh, where the last kind of stand against the British Empire, uh, they fought very bravely and they lost only because they were betrayed. Um, and then this is also where uh, the British destroyed the Muslim weaving industry, forced farmers to grow indigo rather than cash crops, starved them, basically deindustrialized us. Um, but then it's also the site of so many peasant revolts, 
um, including the, this wasn't a peasant revolt, but the Sepia mutiny in 1857. The first war of liberation was in this very area of West Bengal. So these are very uh, heroic, fearless people. Uh, the colonial empire designated them as a non-martial race to kind of make them, uh, as part of their whole plan of division, divide and conquer, but to make them seem like they're very weak, but they're very strong people. And these are the same people who fought for their independence. Um, and so, I mean, Bangladesh, the history, first of all, in 1947, there's partition, which split up India into East Pakistan and West Pakistan on the basis of religion, um, even though these two states are hundreds of miles away from each other. But really, this was not a state that was democratically created. It was really created so the West could have a warm water port in Karachi to use against the Soviet Union. So from the start, there's this thwarting of the democratic dreams of people for the um, uh, empire's Cold War, basically. Again and again, you see this pattern. Um, and so under East Pakistan, these same people, because of this colonial mentality, uh, the ruling elites treated East Bengal like a colony. Um, and they were allocated much less money. They were denied the right to their language. It was said that they were not Islamic enough but basically you see the real oppression of these people. And so for the first time in 1970, Pakistan has uh, democratic elections. And in these democratic elections, Bangladesh, the Awami League headed by Mujibur Rahman, who we're celebrating, they overwhelmingly won the national election, but it was suspended by the US backed forces of uh, Pakistan. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about what Mujibur Rahman's dream was, what he was fighting for, uh, what he was running on, what, what his platform was. So obviously there was a right of the Bengali people to control their destiny, but there was also this idea of, we want to end exploitation. We stand by the peasantry, the right to share wealth, the nationalization of banks, the elimination of monopolists and cartels, the nationalization of the jute and cotton industry, revolutionizing the landlord system, land reform, developing rural areas, education for all, equality for all, regardless of religion. And very importantly, he wanted a non-aligned foreign policy. He wanted withdrawal from the US military pacts of CETO and CENTO, which were, were basically supporting the US in their war in Vietnam. Um, and these are anti-communist pacts against the Soviet Union. So he was clearly, this is this is what the people were striving for. Um, and after the, the freedom struggle, he joined the non-aligned movement. Um, and he supported the struggles in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, and Fidel Castro said of him, I have not seen the Himalayas, but I have seen Sheikh Mujib. And personality and courage, this man is the Himalayas. I have thus had the experience of witnessing the Himalayas. And like all freedom fighters, he sacrificed enormously. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, basically what happened is, so after the suspension of these elections, there was a crackdown on the Bengali people, most infamously a genocide in 1971. And there's just hundreds of thousands of people killed, intellectuals, minorities, children. I mean, you had people going in and just like going into universities and just murdering people, building mass graves. Uh, and basically this was all done with the support and even arms of the United States, specifically Nixon and Kissinger. And, and there was this real racist mentality behind it. Um, like when the Indian government was saying, we're having all these refugees, 
the, the um, you know, in, in recorded now released stuff, they're saying like, it's all right, they should just be shot. You know, isn't this what the Spanish did to the Incas? This is what you have to do to maintain control. And, you know, these Indians, they need another famine. Why do they keep breeding? I mean, just real, this is the real face of uh, empire and how they view people and their uh, demands for democracy. And so, I mean, in this context, there are people in America who are part of the peace movement, even people who are part of the state, who even they are saying this is wrong. But like Archer Blood, he sent this blood telegram about the genocide that was going on and he sacrificed his career. Um, and even, so when actually we're inviting this man to speak, Rehman Soban, but he organized an international campaign to tell Americans what was happening. He was completely ignored and brushed off by uh, the American government because they wanted to prop up this military dictatorship in Pakistan. So he realized, he says in this interview, I realized I had to go to the American people and to the Congress. And so that's what he did. And actually the people did support um, the people of Bangladesh. They passed a law to deny Pakistani government aid while they were doing all this. But Nixon and Kissinger, they didn't care. They, they sent it through Iran. They did, they did what they had to do. Um, and so this is, I think this is really a case again of these colonies having empires uh, and um, denying their own de democracies. There is no democracy with empire, um, basically. And so even after, so they do win their liberation struggle. These same peasants who became freedom fighters, they won. But then even after they won, there were many, many, many CIA-backed attempts to undermine their government, to uh, encourage insurgency. And eventually in 1975, they did assassinate Mujibur Rahman and his entire family. And there are very clear signs that the US was involved. They murdered his entire family, including his small son. It was just incredibly brutal. Um, and then so Bangladesh goes back to military dictatorships. So again and again, the striving for democracy is denied. Um, and, you know, they turn against the Soviet Union. And um, so I, I think, I mean, the reason I think we have to remember this history today is, I mean, the West is clearly weakening. I mean, these same forces that did these horrible things all over the world, um, they're weakening. And contrary to the popular belief um, or what the propaganda of the West the rise of the West will, the, the decline of the West will bring democracy to the rest of the world and not deny it. Um, and so I, I just wanted to end with a quote by um, Du Bois. Democracy has failed because so many fear it. They believe that wealth and happiness are so limited that a world full of intelligent, healthy and free people is impossible if not undesirable. So the world stews in blood, hunger and shame. The fear is false, yet not can face it, but faith. And I think we really see that in Bangladesh. I mean, Sheikh Mujibu's dream of democracy, we have to remember that dream and continue it today. And now the forces are more uh, ripe for it than ever. Um, uh, and so we're having an event on April 24th and 25th, where, so we're going to have uh, presentations about the history of all this and also what the implications of this history are today. And the, the 25th will actually be a little bit earlier. It'll be at 8.30 in the morning, our time. But that's so that we'll also have speakers from India and Bangladesh, including Rehman Soban, who was an actual participant in the struggle for liberation. 
and he's going to be in conversation with Doc and uh, um, uh, S.P. Shukla, who is a part of the Indian government and their struggles for democracy and socialism in the global south. And we're going to talk about what this history means today and uh, what the rise of China and the rise of Asia and the rise of the East really means for these dreams, these dreams of democracy. Um, and so I just wanted to ask if Jahan had anything uh, he wanted to say. Uh, thank you for that uh, excellent overview of that history. I, I think I just wanted to emphasize uh, again in the, in the current moment, uh, we have to turn back to a lot of this history of this period and uh, particularly situate uh, Bangladesh's struggle in that history because as we often talk about in the free school, this period of the 50s, 60s, 70s, this period of Bandung was also a period of revolution throughout the world and particularly in Asia. And as uh, Meghna rightly said, these events were unfolding as the US was waging war on Asia, first in Korea and then in a very long protracted and genocidal war in Vietnam and uh, was engaged in also neo-colonialism throughout Asia, which was basically the situation in what was then undivided Pakistan. And uh, Sheikh Mujib emerged as this leader in the democratic struggle of then united Pakistan to make reforms and ultimately was transformed into a revolutionary through the events he lived through. And one of the interesting things we've also found, Meghna particularly has discovered in this research is uh, Sheikh Mujib's own connection to China and particularly to Sun Yat-sen, uh, he, he had visited China as part of a world peace a conference and then also as part of a delegation of parliamentarians from then uh, uh, Pakistan and uh, was very inspired by what was happening in China uh, and the, the experiment in socialism and world peace. Although later uh, he would be disappointed by the positions that Mao took during uh, Bangladesh's uh, struggle for freedom. Uh, much of that had to do with uh, Mao's own kind of right-wing turn in foreign policy, but he's still, even after winning independence, he talked about the importance of Sun Yat-sen and the importance of the Chinese revolution. And today also under the new leadership of Xi Jinping, who in many ways is, we've talked about is more a continuation of Xi Jinping than some of the right-wing turns of, of Mao we're seeing a renewed relationship between China and Bangladesh and also China and many parts of Asia. So uh, this, is, this is another thing that makes this history significant for the rise of Asia, for Pan-Asia. And also, uh, as Meghna said, his relationship with the non-aligned movement, which is a movement of all the, as Du Bois said, the darker nations for world transformation. Um, and we're, uh, in a lot of ways, this is also a call to finish an unfinished revolution because his life, his life being cut short with the intervention of imperialism meant that the vision he had has been left incomplete. And even after his death, Bangladesh had, has had a long struggle against pro-Western uh, military dictatorships. And in fact, one of the interesting things is that uh, when the initial struggle was happening, because it was over this, uh, the fact that his electoral and his party's electoral mandate had been stolen by the uh, military authorities, the martial law authorities, there was sympathy in uh, among uh, Western liberals for Bangladesh, like in the US Congress, people like Ted Kennedy, and even in a lot of segments of the Western press were sympathetic. But once 
uh, he took power, Mujib took power and Bangladesh became independent. And once he started to move past the parliamentary system of government and create a one party revolutionary state, perhaps what we could call Doc has, I think said the state of the whole people or dictatorship of the whole people. Mujib merged his uh, Avami League with the Communist Party of Bangladesh and some other progressive and left-wing forces into one party. And then it also announced massive land reforms, nationalizations, non-aligned foreign policy. At that point, you see a lot of the liberal opinion in the West totally turn against him in 1975. And Time Magazine and other places start accusing him of being a dictator, mismanaging the economy, and being responsible for famines and other things. And then ultimately, this creates an environment in which there could first be an insurgency against him. And then uh, certain army officers who had been speaking with Western forces could then participate in an overthrow of his government. So we're also going to be talking about that radical part, that radical section of, of uh, Mujib's life and, and his vision and how that relates to the struggle of the darker nations, many of whom also attempted to go past these uh, liberal forms of government into some into states which could provide for their people. Uh, and also, I think it's important to emphasize that this event is going to be about connecting the people of South Asia with the poor masses of the United States, particularly the African-American masses. In some ways, it's going to be a continuation of, of much of the history we've discussed in the year of Du Bois, year of Gandhi, and so on, about the relationship between Afro-America and Asia. So we'll be getting into the civilizational links, the cultural links, the political links, and talking about how we need to revive overall this connection between the progressive forces in the United States, uh, particularly the African-American community and other oppressed groups and the progressive forces in Asia in this time of the rise of Asia. And uh, so it'll be situated in this overall uh, project uh, of the free school. That's, can I just say something, Jahan? That's, that's beautiful what you and Megna just laid out. And I know for most people who might be listening, and certainly most people in this country, uh, this is not even remote history. It's something that people don't even remember or know about. I think uh, Sheikh Muji Rahman and his movement began as a movement of self-rule, not separation from Pakistan. Uh, and, you know, like Meghna points out, um, the partitioning of India after independence, and, you know, we'll set aside what you think about that event, but even with the formation of Pakistan as a Muslim state, and the claim that Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and Christians and Buddhists couldn't live together in India, in spite of the fact that they had lived together for thousands of years, uh, it made obvious that the partition was a neo-colonial project. But even within that, uh, East Pakistan was not equal to Western Pakistan. I mean, it was poorer, it was less developed, and of course, under US control, which Pakistan was, uh, because the West was the site 
of US military bases, uh, more US investment and Western investment was in the West. And so this uprising in the East was really a poor people's campaign, you know? And I remember it uh, and the Pakistani government responded with a genocidal war against East Pakistan. And it was the resistance to that that brought world attention to that situation. I know in, in London, there was this big concert featuring the Beatles and all of this money was raised. Even in the United States, uh, the liberal uh, wing of the Democratic Party, parenthetically, when there was a genuinely liberal wing, uh, kind of merging with the anti-Vietnam War sentiment, condemned what Pakistan, West Pakistan was doing in East Pakistan. However, uh, besides Mujib and the uh, uh, East Pakistan masses, the great hero of this is Indira Gandhi. Uh, today, Indira is vilified, erased, not spoken about. I consider her the greatest governmental leader in post-independent India. She deployed in the face of a genocidal war by Pakistan, she deployed the Indian army, first of all, to block Pakistani military forces from coming across India to uh, East Pakistan, and then aid to Mujib and the liberation forces. It was a heroic struggle. Um, the, the last thing, it merges with a moment of the upsurge of national liberation forces in Southern Africa, in uh, Southeast Asia. And I'd like to include Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia because they were in a common fight at that time. Uh, and so Mujib was a part of that. The Awami League was a part of that. And um, in conversation recently with, uh, with Meghna and Johan, and I had kind of forgotten about it because, you know, and then when they brought it to my attention, the brutal assassination of Sheikh Muji and his entire family, which was a signal that they could not have gotten rid of the Awami League because they were so organic to the people. So this act of terror and setback. And of course, um, and, and I, Joe, I agree with you. Um, Bangladesh has suffered ever since. Poverty um, and, and so on. Uh, but they have this great legacy and the memory, this is his 100th birthday, I'm, I'm, I'm certain. The great memory of uh, this great leader and this great resistance and the memory of at that time, how if you stood for justice and freedom, the world would embrace you. And that's what happened. It's, um, this is a memorable 
occasion. Uh, and I think I would say <clears throat> to the US people, especially those <clears throat> who understand the struggle for peace, that we in the first instance must stand up in anti-imperialist solidarity with all people who fight for freedom. And ignorance is no excuse. I didn't know is no excuse. If you claim to be a radical, a revolutionary, a leftist, it is your responsibility to know. The first obligation of a revolutionary is to study. And ignorance of, of, of oppression, no matter where it occurs, is not an excuse. So <clears throat> I look forward uh, to the event at the end of April. It's gonna be a great uh, event and it will help us, we, US people, to shoulder our responsibility, our moral duty to world humanity. Uh, Stephen, uh, Greg Palmier comments partition as manipulation to facilitate imperial design, which is a good summary of that tactic which we've seen played out in many places. And uh, I think we're all looking forward to this event. And in a lot of ways, this event also uh, puts us in line with the number of events that have happened and are happening around the world commemorating this. I was watching that at the UN General Assembly last year, there are a number of uh, ambassadors who spoke in commemoration of Sheikh Mujib, uh, the Q ambassadors from Cuba, Palestine, China. And then recently you've had certain different world leaders pay tributes, including Xi Jinping. Um, so this is, this is a moment of significance. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, rebuilding that connection between the American people and progressive forces here with progressive forces of, of Asia is very important in this moment, as Doc said. Yeah, I just think this thing of fulfilling the promise, you know, fulfilling the promise of the civil rights movement, you know, end the war machine and, you know, fund the schools and give employment to everybody. Uh, the promises of Mujibur Rahman, make the state into a development state, prioritize the people, um, prioritize peace. And just how this really is a time when all of that is possible. I mean, it really is within our grasp if we can see what's happening and if we can unite with the right forces. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just really a time we have to fight for this kind of clarity. I remember uh, a few years ago when you all organized the Azadi Festival uh, at a church in Upper Darby a, I think it was an Indian Christian church. And I remember in the audience was a significant uh, group of Bangladeshis, including a lot of Bangladeshi children. Uh, and I was so honored to be in their presence uh, because I do recall, I, you know, um, the, the great struggle of the Bangladeshi people. And I, I, I remember even to this day, 
and I'm aware of, I should say, the ongoing suffering. Uh, maybe the Bangladeshis may be among the poorest people of South Asia, um, and so on. So yes. Yeah, also the, a lot of it is the environmental uh, devastation of colonialism, which deindustrialized and also did a lot of damage to the agriculture of, of uh, Bengal. And then uh, some also argue with global warming because it's below, become below sea level, it's often flooded and prone to natural disasters. But actually in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, uh, according to like this, uh, they've been doing well in terms of export-led development and growth. So it's some are arguing that in terms of GDP, they're, they're actually become the fastest growing country in South Asia because of that. Great. And also uh, the return of uh, the Avami League to power, some argue, is part of it under Sheikh Najib's daughter. But uh, another comment from Nanda. She says, I just wanted to say that Indira Gandhi took many principal decisions in this time. She never made the Indian army's involvement communal, even though Hindus were being killed in large numbers in East Pakistan by the communal army. She treated it as a human issue. After the independence of Bangladesh, she retreated the Indian army within three months. In the modern world, this is unheard of and she was accused many times of having territorial ambitions. The guest we are having for this event uh, Professor Rahman Sobhan was given the responsibility to coordinate the international campaign for Bangladesh by Mujib. And he traveled widely to India and Western nations to take the issue of Bangladesh to the masses and other nations. And yes, uh, we're excited about this uh, speaker because uh, as Meghna was saying, he was involved, he was a freedom fighter in the sense that he, he had before independent, before the, free, uh, the actual uh, war of independence, he had been involved as an economist, which he's trained uh, in, in uh, publishing information about the disparity between the two wings of Pakistan and also in the political movement for self-rule. And then when it finally came to the war of independence, he went to India and then from there to the United States and other places and was campaigning for solidarity with the struggle in uh, Bangladesh. And then he, uh, after independence was achieved, he became a founding member of the planning commission of Bangladesh. And he, was, he had a good relationship with Sheikh Mujib, personal relationship as well. And uh, so he's a very significant figure. And then since then also he's been worked as a professor and an advisor to various governments of Bangladesh and in South Asia. And actually a lot of his writings, he's now talking about the significance of the rise of China and what it means for South Asia and the need for a good positive relationship between South Asia and China and the rest of Asia in this uh, period. So we're, you know, we're very much excited to have that he's agreed to speak to us. Yeah, I also just want to add, we don't know him or have any connections with him. We literally just called him up on his website. Um, like uh, we, we went through different administrators and they all happily, they're, oh, you're organizing a program in Bongabundu? Like, yeah, we'll give you his number. He, and then we contacted him and, you know, we, I think it was a little early in the morning or something. He was like, all right, just write me an email what you want to do. And so we wrote him and just by, we, we just sent him free school. Like we sent him um, what we had written for what we wanted the program to be, the non-aligned movement, Martin Luther King. Um, we talked about like, 
you know, the different forces that were involved with free school, the history of struggle. And he agreed. I mean, it's just, he really did agree based on principles. So, I mean, I'm really excited for this event um, and just for the alignment that we can make with people around the world based on what we stand for. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention from what Jahan was saying, I was just thinking about the recent meeting between uh, the um, US foreign, uh, the ambassador and the Chinese ambassador and just how silly and ugly the US behaved, uh, you know, saying like, oh, you know, you're violating a rules-based order. And China was saying, we're not the ones who are doing regime change all over the world. Like, how can you talk to us like this? But just the cynicism with which imperialism views foreign relations, like they can only see Indira Gandhi as territorial ambition. And I, I mean, I agree with Putin saying this is projection. I mean, you're the way you act in the world. That's how you see other people as acting. But just how this the different vision by the darker nations for international genuine peace, genuine oh, cooperation. Uh, would, you, would you be kind enough just to explain the Putin Biden thing and, and how what Putin's response because I think the response of the Chinese to Blinken yeah you know the U.S. delegation in Alaska and Putin's response to Biden I think are very important at this time yeah uh I mean someone else can jump in with more if I forget some of the details but I know I think Biden called Putin a killer right. and Putin said Putin and then what is your response to this Putin and he said, uh, well, I just wish Biden good health. And I think this is really an evidence of projection. This is a psychological thing, you know, where, you know, it's just like with insecure, anxious, neurotic people, they project. Let me just interrupt you. What Putin was saying, yeah. Biden called him a killer. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's a killer. He has no soul. Yeah. And what Putin said in our language, it takes one to know one. You understand? It right. takes one it's to know one. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, Meg. No, no, that's it. It takes one to know one. Well, also, uh, in, in, I, I think it, the origin is from an interview that Biden did on, uh, I think, ABC News with George Stephanopoulos. And Stephanopoulos asked him, I think he asked him, do you think uh, Putin is a killer? And he said, yes, he has no soul. I know him fairly well. And then also he asked him about the allegations the intelligence agencies are making about Russian and other countries interference in the last elections. And they're also claiming that Putin personally ordered the influence operations. And so Biden was like, yeah, he did it and he's going to pay a price. And so it was in response to that that Putin made these statements, particularly uh, according to one article from RT, uh, he said, uh, speaking on Thursday, Putin suggested that Biden may be projecting, noting that evaluating other countries is like, quote, looking in a mirror. Uh, he said, quote, when I was a kid, when we were arguing with each other in the playground, we used to say, whatever you say about others is what you are yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Putin also noted that Washington is determined to have a relationship with Moscow, but only on issues that are of interest to the United States itself. Even though they think we are like them, we are different people. We have a different genetic and cultural and moral code, he said. Um, yeah, so it was pretty, it was pretty interesting, interesting what he said. Is Putin's way of acknowledging what we have talked about mm -hmm. here through Du Bois, that Russia 
and certainly the former Soviet Union, is more Asian than it is Western. And what Putin is saying is that we have already decided that our fate is with Asia. Uh, we can talk more about that, uh, but it was, the interaction is very, very important on a number of levels. Uh, but, uh, but then about uh, uh, the US and China in Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska. You wanna say something about that, Meg? Oh yeah, again, maybe someone else can fill in with the details, but just recently there was a summit in Alaska and um, it was with Blinken and I don't remember the name of the Chinese uh, ambassador, but it was just- Foreign Minister of China. Foreign Minister of China. Yeah. It was supposed to be something fairly routine, but Blinken had this kind of moment where, oh, I'm gonna use it to attack China for their treatment of minorities and you're violating a rules-based international order, you know, with your crackdowns and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and yeah, and, the and he responded by saying, you know, we're not interested. China will not behave the way the US behaved with regime change wars. You know, it just kind of like, like we're not going to play this game with you of like, oh, we're not oppressing our minorities. We're, what moral authority do you have? you know, to talk to us. Um, but I don't know, maybe someone can pull up the exact exchange. Um. Yeah, well, um, what was interesting, like ming was saying, it was supposed to be something, you know, diplomatic. And also uh, the way that these things work, at least my understanding is that they're supposed to kind of, there's like a lot of formality and pleasantry they're supposed to show to the public and whatever heated discussion they may have, you're the protocol you're supposed to have that behind closed doors um so and the press was there and it was like a big public event so it was kind of considered very rude by diplomatic standards to for the u.s side to openly start attacking china in front of all the cameras and then the chinese felt obligated to respond and then the u.s people were like it, they were gesturing to the press stay here we're going to respond again and it was really it was so dumb because I feel like a lot of these liberal people, like especially this guy Blinken, and then I think it it was a two plus two it was Blinken and the national security advisor. His name is Jake Sullivan with the Chinese foreign minister and another senior uh, diplomat from China. So, but these guys have been watching the American side. They've been watching too much West Wing and shows like that, <laughs> where they think everything is like a dramatic, we're going to have a dramatic teaching moment. We're going to teach the Chinese about democracy. And they're like gesturing the press, stay here. Like, you know, like, oh no, you know, we're working towards a more perfect union. What are you working to, you know, but just to the rest of the world who are not brainwashed by the West Wing and other dumb propaganda, it just sounds, just makes the U.S. look terrible. And, uh, there was one in, one interesting quote from it was uh, the, from the Chinese side. It was the uh, the other dip, the other person besides the foreign minister was the Chinese director of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission named Yang Jiqi, I think. He said, uh, "Let me say that in front of the Chinese side, the U U.S. does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. The U.S. side was not even qualified to say such things." even 20 years or 30 years back, because that is not the way to deal with the Chinese people. If the United States wants to deal properly with the Chinese side, then let's follow the necessary protocol and do things the right way. So they were, he, he was basically saying like, 
now we're our economies are pretty much the same. Maybe China's even a little bit ahead if you control for their currency and everything. What do you think? Even despite that, before when maybe you were ahead of us economically twenty or thirty years ago, even then you didn't have the right to speak to us this way because there's a basic principle in international relations of the equality of sovereign nations, and uh, so they're very clear and upfront. They weren't, you know, they were they basically stepped to the uh, the American side. I feel like. And uh, there was also something interesting I saw on Facebook. People were making memes comparing the uh, negotiation, the deal that ended the Boxer Rebellion, in which the Chinese diplomats were very kind of humiliated and submissive to the West, which is I think almost exactly a hundred years ago, in 1901, or maybe more than a hundred years, I guess 120 years ago. And then this 2021, where the Chinese side is saying this, you know, very strongly responding and and uh, standing up to the. U.S. and then uh, because over over the remarks that Biden had said about Putin, Putin actually called his ambassador from Washington back to Russia for consultations. And and I had also read that after this Alaska meeting, the Chinese had invited the Russian foreign minister to China for consultations. So it seems like they'll have some kind of united response to this kind of arrogant uh, behavior by the uh, American diplomats and American uh, administration. And you know, uh, Martin Luther King in the famous Why I Pose the War in Vietnam speech asked the question, quote, and who made America the moral policeman of the whole world? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, events of last week were very, very important. They were not, you know, uh, planned, it just happened. But what, what did happen is significant going forward. Uh, As you point out, Joe, um, the uh, Russian foreign minister Lavrov and the Chinese foreign minister are immediately entered into high level talks about what this means and what we, Russia and China must do going forward, highly significant. The other thing is this guy Blinken and this other guy, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they're children in this game compared to these uh, seasoned diplomats in Russia and China. And they do see themselves as diplomats, not as uh, quote, heads of state, not as propagandists, not as showmen, but as diplomats, as professionals, with a professional obligation to reflect the nation, the state, and the people. So they behave in a certain way at all times. And that's why the foreign minister is not, will not act in the same way that the head of state would, you know. For example, Lavrov from Russia and Putin behave very differently, different personas, you know, and the same in China. But, but this, I think, has to be seen as a turning point. The other thing is, I ask myself, when events and things like this happen, where are the loud anti-racist voices in the United States. Is it all right 
to be racist. And that's what that those two guys were, little racist uh, punks. And that's all that maybe went to an Ivy League college and drank too much beer. That kind of racism towards representatives of an ancient civilization is intolerable and unacceptable. The other thing is, you know, we're talking about anti-Asian violence in the United States. And I wanna be, I, you know, from my point of view, when Biden and, and Kamala Harris get it, it ain't about what they say it's about any longer. It's a political thing now to consolidate their moral, and I put quotes, moral uh, standing with the American people. If they were concerned about anti-Asian violence, what about the violence of your diplomats in Anchorage, Alaska? Or your violence of uh, Biden, of your language against Putin? Let us not forget, the Russian and Soviet people sacrificed 26 million people in the defeat of Nazism. They have some moral standing, if for no other reason, because of that. So from my standpoint, I, I react against moral hypocrisy and it's all over the place in the United States. Uh, racism, when you can use it, when you can weaponize it, for political purposes. Oh, I'm an anti-race. Oh, we're having a, a, a reckoning on race. Oh, how to be an anti-racist. But it's not racism when it is directed towards Asians and Africans by your own government. So I think it's a turning point. I was very, um, enthusiastic, I was very excited about both Putin and the Chinese diplomats because I know there was a period when China was economically less, uh, 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 not in such a strong position where Chinese diplomats would, you know, uh, take low, would let the United States talk to them in almost any kind of way always voting with the United States in the UN Security Council and all that type of thing. But those days are over. Those days are over. And thank God they're over. The world is different. And there is no, let's put it this way. You can't fight and King understood this, Malcolm X understood this, the whole black freedom movement. SNCC understood it, Kwame Ture, Everybody understood this. You can't fight oppression in the United States and be indifferent to US imperialist oppression and aggression all over the world. I mean, that was, Catherine will tell, I mean, that's, that's kind of what's in me. That's the way I came up. I don't understand no quote, Black Lives Matter and you don't care about Asian lives in Asia. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's moral and political hypocrisy. And I guess part of what the free school is about, you talk about political education, 
is shaming the devil, shaming the hypocrites. I'm not on Biden's side on anything, nothing. Okay, I take my $1,400 and I want everybody to get that and more. But that don't mean I'm down with you. And that don't mean I don't understand why you're doing that. The American working class is in a state of turmoil, angry, don't believe in the government and all that type of thing in a way. I have never seen this level of anger among working people across the color lines in my life. And I grew up on the class struggle, if you want to put it that, that way. Never has the working class of this country been so alienated and see its government as its enemy ever. I understand what Biden and them are trying to do, trying to you know, soften that anger, but I'm not down with you because I know your larger scheme, I know your larger program is world domination of imperial hegemony. And, and you talk about China, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, all that type of thing, because you're trying to get a moral foot up, but it's not going to work. For the free school, stay the course. Don't back up, don't back down, don't give in. Because in the not so long run, people are gonna come and say, you were right. And we are right. Nabila writes, uh, prioritize peace. Uh, Stephen Palmier writes uh, that the U.S. added sanctions on China just before the Alaska meeting. Yes. Uh, Joni Allen writes, yes, Lord, hallelujah, I think in response to what you're saying. <laughs> 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 um, I also wanted to add... Uh, what we're seeing with these kind of two directions, these two kind of camps, the world is being divided. I don't even know if the, there's the US, I don't know how many people you want to put in their camp, but it's the US. And then there's pretty much the same countries of the world that are trying to build a multipolar world in a world not based on regime change, war and sanctions, uh, led by China and Russia. And so the, uh, the China-Russia side has announced also around the time of this meeting, that uh, they're forming a group in the United Nations of 16 countries, which is called, I think it's called Friends of the Charter of the United Nations, basically a group that's there to defend the principles of, on which the United Nations was founded, which is basically the principles of non-interference, sovereignty of nations, uh, avoiding war, promoting cooperation, working towards disarmament and those sorts of principles. Uh, so it's China, Russia, Iran, I think North Korea and Laos and a few other uh, countries. So that's, I think, a positive sign. Uh, but then on the other side of it, the US and the United Kingdom have announced that they're expanding their nuclear arsenals. The US announced that it's going to spend $100 billion, a billion with a B, to develop a new nuclear missile which could travel 6,000 miles carrying a warhead 20 times stronger than the one dropped on Hiroshima. And uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced plans to lift the United, uh, United Kingdom's cap on its nuclear stockpile. 
ending three decades of gradual nuclear disarmament that had become British policy. So we're seeing the West basically expanding this move towards aggression. And in the midst of this pandemic and the mass kind of poverty that's happened, they're giving out $1,400 checks, but then spending $100 billion on nuclear missiles, which are going to be aimed at China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, and other supposed enemies of the U.S. Uh, so I think that also has to be that helps us also put in context these recent events. And, you know, uh, if I'm talking too much, you know, please shut me down. But, you know, um, we went through 30 years of regime change and society destructive wars in what we call the Middle East, which is actually Western Asia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, of course, Libya, I mean, complete destruction of stable, thriving societies. And um, in a sense, we always knew that the big one was only around the corner. Uh, Iraq was, because of sanctions, it could not defend itself. Uh, Libya, a nation of six million, what could it do against three NATO powers with bombs and plant jets and so on? Um, Afghanistan had gone through civil war, which we could talk about it. It's a whole different uh, uh, process than let us say Iraq, but nonetheless wars and occupation. And they don't wanna give up the occupation of either Iraq or Afghanistan. No, they don't wanna give it up, but because that's Asia, remember Asia. You know, and, but it was always known that ultimately the big one in Asia was Russia and China. And of course now, everyone has to decide. You can't be neutral. The government of India has to stop playing games. Either you Asian or you not. That game playing is what got Japan in all the trouble. It, it got in and in some ways is still in. You know, um, but this is the great struggle before us and the outcome of it, which I don't think will be that, the outcome, the determination is not going to be that long off will decide a lot about how humanity will move forward, including how Africa and South America and Central America will move forward. Because a new alignment will mean something even for the Central American countries, you know, like uh, Honduras and, and El Salvador and so, which are controlled by gangs and drug cartels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Their fate is being decided in this, uh, you could call it a confrontation between the, these large nations of Asia and the United States. It is a struggle for whether US empire will be hegemonic. Uh, Jake Harris writes, if you do right, you're going to be right. 
Uh, Say that once again, if you do right, you what? You gone be right. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> is that a phrase you told him or something? <laughs> I never heard of that. Oh, okay. made up. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Um, Jake tried to be real hip these days, so go uh, ahead. All right. Stephen adds, and led by Iran. I think he's, maybe he's talking about the group at the UN. Yeah. Uh, Joni Allen writes, thank you for being so truthful. As a military widow, I am affected by the aftermath of being kept in the dark. And that's true. I mean, I, there are a lot of uh, families of uh, military people and the surviving military people also who in a lot of ways are, have suffered deeply from these uh, wars. And uh, in some ways that has uh, led, I think, to, uh, to less uh, willingness to go to war even more among segments of the population and geographic areas in which which have sent a lot of soldiers abroad. Yeah, I didn't know about the or I hadn't kept such track of what was happening with the nuclear arsenals, but it's just really horrifying. I mean, if the journalists were really journalists, this would have been the front page story you know, not the rise of anti-Asian violence. Um, it's just it's just really the ideological manipulation and control is really, really shocking. And also just where is the peace movement, you know, making these things known and heard, I mean. And, and you know, and you're right. You see, Meg, the political reconceptualization of what the struggle is and what it is not, you see, the American people as such must find common ideological and political ground in the fight for peace and democracy. And we can do it. It's happened before, not that long ago. You know, it can be done but there are many ideological obstacles in our path. But, you know, as they say, somebody has to tell the truth. Somebody has to stand up for what is right, minority position or not. You know, uh, you know like uh, King and, and Du Bois were fond of quoting James Russell Lowell truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but it is the scaffold that sways the future. Let me interpret that. Truth forever on the scaffold is the hangman's scaffold. Truth forever on the edge of being assassinated, being killed, wrong forever in power, but it is the scaffold, truth that sways the future. And that's what we're in. We're in an existential battle for the future. And just like the woman said about uh, her husband was killed in one of these uh, imperialist wars. Uh, I'm of the Vietnam generation. A lot of my people were killed over there and killed, died as a result of the chemicals 
that they and the Vietnamese people were exposed to that were dropped from US planes. I can only imagine the types of cancers and other diseases impacting the Vietnamese people from the United States. Not to mention, you know, only 10, 20 years earlier, what they did in Korea, genocidal wars, and then always holding over humanity, the threat of nuclear war. Like, you know, they would, they would I mean, openly per perform. Yeah, we're mad, man. We got some nuts up in here. And if you get out of hand, we'll drop a nuclear bomb on you. You cannot imagine. And I, I say to young people, to if you are in the movement, quote unquote, I guess I'm going to talk like Teddy Pendergrass, be for real. Be for real. Don't be half-stepping. Ain't no halfway to be in no movement. If you're for Black freedom, go all the way. Be for the freedom of all people. But that's not what's going on here. You know, you can be a socialist and a warmonger at the same time. Now tell me how you do that. You know, let me shut my mouth up. You know, if you've been, I was drafted twice. Okay, I ain't gonna make no big thing of myself, but I was drafted twice. Face going to war. I, I wasn't gonna go, no kind of way. You know what I'm saying? But here you got cats coming, oh, I'm a socialist. Have you ever faced war? Have you ever faced the war makers and had to say to them, lock me up? I'm not gonna fight your dirty wars. No, if you've never faced that, don't tell me nothing about socialism. Socialism is a hollow phrase, a meaningless phrase, a performative word, rather than a substantive commitment morally. And that's why the American political system, the left, right, and center, are defined more by their hypocrisy and immorality than by their consistency and commitment to struggle. I mean, to, to follow up on what's being said, um, I think this realignment of countries is beautiful and really kind of like almost poetic in a sense because things are coming full circle. And it's like the, the spirit of Bandung and the spirit of the anti-colonial struggles of the 50s, 60s and 70s are being uh, rekindled. And um, you know, for people in America, I mean, there, there lies uh, the opportunity to make the right choice and to stand on the, the right side of history. Um, and what we can take from this is that you know, China, Russia, um, all of the countries in ASEAN, I mean, they are teaching us a lesson and that is how, like a new way that we can relate to one another, a new way that we can relate to humanity. Um, 
you know, we were talking about Indira Gandhi earlier, um, you know, who at, at the time of the, the Bangladesh, uh, the genocide in Bangladesh, she stood for the Bangladeshi people. And she um, also, when Vietnam uh, saved Cambodia from the Khmer Rouge, uh, they were blackballed by the international community, well, the Western aligned international community, and even Asian countries like uh, Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, Malaysia. And um, Indira Gandhi, as a part of the non-aligned movement, was one of the people who stood uh, for the Vietnamese at this time when, um, yeah, when they were being blackballed. And, um, you know, and it, it was like a time when uh, under the guise of like saving Asian people or like helping them, you know, they turned Asian people against their own interests because their relationships to each other were mediated by the West. And that's how like, that's how like there was so much betrayal at that time. But I think a strong position like what Indira Gandhi took to save Bangladesh from, you know, the, uh, from the, the, the genocide that the pa Pakistan government was doing um, is echoed to this day when uh, Vladimir Putin was saying like, the reason why we went into Syria because I saw the same thing happen to Gaddafi and I couldn't let that happen. And it's like this great moral choice, this great courage that can reopen the doors of imagination of our generation, you know, to really see the, themselves as a part of this world and a, a part of like a greater struggle. And like in this way, like a, a, new, a new love, a new synthesis between peoples uh, can be formed. And I would add a reacquaintance with the hist with the uh, the historic struggles of the leadership of that time, and to make their names known. Yes, that's very very important because, like Indira Gandhi, their names are tarnished or erased, and we need their names and what they did. We uh, we need their names and what they did. I guess reinvigorated so that people will know that this is the way you struggle like King and Du Bois. This is the way you struggle if you, you know, are a revolutionary, or even if you just say, listen, I wanna struggle to save humankind, all right? But you, we have to have those heroes and their histories because they are examples for us to follow. Uh, another comment from, uh... Joni Allen, she writes, absolutely, it saddens me to see what is going on in the world. It is time to stop the hatred and love all mankind, no matter the race, color, creed, or national origin. Agape, love of all creation. And uh, I, I think, and this is the same a woman who was saying she's a, she's a widow also. I think she's a, a studying at a Bible college or works at a Bible college. But uh, I think that, that uh, this concept of agape is something we learned when we were through the free school with the year of Du Bois and year of Gandhi. We talked about King, how he developed it. And it's something which has been very uh, central to the free school's understanding of uh, African-American civilization and also how, how to build unity uh, across the world. So I think you've hit on something you know, very significant. This is, this is what we need. Instead of this politics of 
representation and the politics of the woke elites and black faces or brown faces or whatever in high places. What about the politics of agape? Where did that go? I mean, I thought that's what the civil rights movement was about. That's what King was about. And a lot of ways, and that was mirroring what Bandung and these other uh, peoples were also struggling for. And so I think that is what we need in this, in this time. We need to return to that. We not these kind of distractions being put out um, and uh, manipulations by politicians and people who are just interested in winning elections or getting more grants or making another buck. We, the, the real struggle is to bring back this politics of uh, agape to the United States. And I think that would be so powerful. That would be transformational uh, of the society. Something that, oh, oh, sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, please. I was going to say something that also stood out from what you said at the very beginning, Magna, when you were talking about Sheikh Mujibir, was this finishing and also an unfulfilled dream, an unfulfilled dream of democracy. Um, because from, from the conversation between Xi Jinping and the leader of Bangladesh, what he did was he also connected, he talked about how what Bangladesh today in China share today is they're attempting to finish an unfulfilled dream of the people, a dream of democracy. Um, and in China, they call it, they have like a phrase for it, the Chinese dream of, a Chinese dream of national rejuvenation or something. And then in Bangladesh, Xi Jinping called it the Sonar Bangla, the golden dream. And it reminded me of King in America. I feel like even on a basic level in America, when he said, I have a dream, I feel like no one has a dream. Like you said, Doc, people in America are so unhappy. They're angry, unhappy across, across class, across color line. And I feel like what you said, Brandon, about something so poetic and beautiful is happening in the rise of the East and a new way of humanity to move forward. It's also bringing back just the ability for people to have a dream especially here in the US. It's like in this country of such unhappy, angry people. Even just speaking, I was just reading an article um, about home ownership in China. Apparently home ownership in China is 95% or something like that. It's so high. And I think just, yeah, I mean, in today, what's happening to cities, just the destruction of home ownership and just you know, finance capital coming in, making everybody a renter and using this to gentrify communities. I mean, the fact that they would say, no, we want people to have their homes. We want healthy, stable, strong, uh, a strong nation uh, made up of people with dignity. I mean, how is that not democracy? Um... Yeah, and just something I wanted to add also with what everyone is saying is that I feel like something that I've been learning a lot from free school is how important it is to have a sense of um, like this historical continuity, you know, in relation to these past movements. Cause I feel like, yeah, going through these sort of elite institutions of education today, it gives you like the most narrow and disconnected and fragmented sense of um, even your own history and your own past. And um, yeah, I think like with what Emily was saying about like the Chinese dream I feel like one thing that is clear is that like these peoples around the world do have a sense of that continuity of actually coming from that tradition um, and coming from that that heritage of struggle and that sense of we need to fulfill this. Whereas 
I feel like so much of what defines the, um, yeah, like the crisis today, especially that you see amongst young people is that there's that discontinuity and you have no real relationship to the past because the state has basically trapped you in this like eternal present where it's all just about like wokeness and cancel culture and like being enraged about all these things. And um, yeah, I think that is part of what makes, yeah, like this, his, like this history so important, um, whether it's in Bangladesh or like in the civil rights movement, um, just because I think, it, yeah, it's just like so incredible, like to stop and just reflect and feel like how much all of these, like these movements, whether it was in the US and in Asia and worldwide, how much they all saw in common with each other. And um, yeah, just how, I mean, it seems like such a foreign and alien thing, like I feel like for young people today, but um, yeah, I really do feel like if there is to be like a real sense of struggle for like the future, it has to come from a sense of like, yeah, like this continuity with like these world movements of the past, which um, yeah, it seems like has been totally like the, yeah, I feel like the ruling elite have done everything they can to sort of stamp that out and suppress it, um, but yeah. The question I have is like, what effect is China on Europe? Cause like I have read that article Michelle reposted about like this um, musician, I forgot what instrument she was playing or whatever in France and how like she was a symbol of China. And I was just thinking about that as you guys were talking because though like, well, one Jahan, that whole thing about the nuclear weapons is that hit me. Um, so that's a thing, but um, at least the cultural manifestations of like a civilizational shift, um, how to, what does that look like and how is that coming um, into being, if you will. But then it's like, um, what's going on with all these shootings now, especially in the city? And um, it kind of speaks to like the unhappiness, the unraveling, the, you know, we were talking about civil war earlier, but like, you know, things are like with what Doc or what you said about um the distrust towards the government you know yeah there's a lot of reasons why people think that our you know our government is full of just cia agents not for the people at all whatsoever um but at the same time yes you do get your money um but money is not everything emily what you're saying like people do um have the right to dream and people want that that's what people want um and then there's like like if there is an increase of shootings, maybe because of the COVID pandemic, which might be one factor, uh, but I don't think is really everything. Um, how come the Black Lives Matter people or so-called activists or whatever wanna um, use George Wallace or like, you know, that situation as a, as a kind of like icon to be against violence and, po you know, against black people. It doesn't, there's like an inconsistency there. Yes. And um, that's only because, you know, the Black Lives Matter people are lying. They're, you know, it's strange because, and it kind of makes me feel like, you know, uh, it's, there's a reason why people don't have a trust at all towards 
these fake revolutionaries, you know? And that's because they don't care about what is going on to real people, to kids, teenagers. It's been like every night that I read an article about high school students, about, you know, that um, pair in West Philadelphia that got hit by 15 and 18 year olds. Why are there so many guns? Why are there so many, you know? So it's like, okay, so there's that situation too. Um, but like, again, free school, like, brings the whole thing together of like Putin, China, what is, like how are they standing up? Like I did also laugh at the RT article. That was great, that's what Baldwin said. You know, the mirror of society, that's, you know, Putin. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's really important because in terms of the values of people, they're alike or akin to um, Asia. They're akin to Africa. They're not akin to America or the West. They're not akin to imperialism at all whatsoever. Um, you know, when we had, um, when James Lawson came here and, you know, we wanted Diane Nash, but COVID hit us and she couldn't come. Hopefully in the next year, maybe Diane Nash could come. But one of the things, you know, that, that was so important in the civil rights movement. And of course, James Lawson and, and Howard Thurman and William Nelson and you know all of these people, they said that to go forward, there must be the moral re-education of the American people. You know, and though you know, in the free school, we don't make a big thing out of religion, you know, almost everybody in the free school is a part of one or another religion, you know? And, um, um, and so, but it is not religion for the hereafter, but religion for the here and now. Um, and I'm reminded of um, King's great sermon, which by the way, was a favorite of Munchies. Uh, the uh, sermon, Three Dimensions of a Complete Life. And if you, if you really analyze it, what he is saying, uh, he is saying that at the end of the day, there is the infinite. There is something bigger than all that we have before us and all that we can imagine. It's like, uh, and I, I learned this from, I forget who I think maybe Magna King's thing that we must move from the colony of time to the empire of eternity. Um, you know, there is no move forward without a moral grounding, especially in a society like this. You know, and they call it secularism, but it is an assault upon the souls of young people and of children. Just look at the Grammy Awards last week. I have grandchildren, I have children, but even if I didn't, they're children and young people that need moral education. We all need to be morally re-educated. 
This is a society that operates upon the basis of moral hypocrisy. You know, like Martin Luther King said, America is a lie. You know, claiming to be democratic, but waging genocide against peoples in Asia. We have to confront this. Everything is not, uh, and just like Serafina, okay, everything is externalized. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I take the position of king. The white masses are not my enemies. The ruling class is my enemy. They are capable of the same moral elevation and moral uh, consistency and moral up, uprightness that I'm capable of. I don't want anything for myself that I don't want for them. Certainly, to use King, the spiritual values, and by that they're talking about what makes us all human. You know, it's not just that we want to eat and live in a home, and that's all true. But there's something more, that recognition of a common humanity that has to be taught. And this is where we are. And it's all a part of a large struggle, bipolarity and politics on a global scale, but also understanding the great traditions of moral and spiritual life that have allowed human beings to be better now than we were yesterday or the day before. This forward movement of humanity and the coming together, the civilizational state, the state of the whole people, the overturning of the rule of finance capital is a moral obligation. We cannot be free under this regime. So, you know, you know it's like you cannot get away from certain of the foundational thinkers that aren't that far removed from us. Martin Luther King Jr., we had him. We can read him, we can listen to his speeches. W.E.B. Du Bois, it's all there. If we are courageous enough to access them and not to accept academic and bourgeois propaganda, that they don't mean that much. In fact, they mean a whole lot at this time. Uh, Joni Allen writes, truly beloved awesomeness, very informative, embrace the, diverse, embrace the beauty of everyone's diversity respectively. There's more power in unity Absolutely. My parents were sharecroppers born in property, South Carolina, lived through slavery, had 11 children, but never taught us to hate others. All lives matter. People have to continuously stand up and grasp that concept. Agape, love for change. Uh, Yvonne writes, 
to be on the right side of history, you have to know your history, the history of humanity's struggle for freedom and peace. You must know reliable sources of history like W.E.B. Du Bois and learning about Russia through his journey for truth. Uh, Sophie Hurt writes, the focus of the recent tragedy in Atlanta has been stop, stopping surface level anti-Asian hate in quotes, rather than addressing the roots of American hysteria and psychological sickness. Violence is at the root of American consciousness and the imperial attacks you all are discussing are proof of that. Uh, Patrice quotes Du Bois, uh, the development of a people from Du Bois and the human future. She writes the solidarity of human interests in a world which is daily becoming physically smaller cannot afford to group in darkness, to grope in darkness as to the causes and incentives to human advance when the advance of all depends increasingly on the advance of each. Yes. You know, and, and, and Joe, just reading these things and listening. See, this is why this know nothingness. Oh, I didn't know that was happening. Oh, I didn't know King said that. Oh, I didn't know that Du Bois fought against uh, US. Oh, I didn't know. You didn't know. Well, it's time to find out. You know, sometimes I encourage people that do a lot of talking to do more reflecting and listening. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, you know, the movement leadership, quote unquote, is more of a performative art than a substantive thing. By substantive, I mean, to lead is a responsibility. I mean, it's not a, um, a performance where I can get the cheers, momentary cheers of a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's a commitment. And if you study King, and we must study King, you know, he understood, especially as he took on the battle against the war in Vietnam. And he says it in that speech, why I pose the war, this is not something I want to do. He said it very, my life could be far easier. I would be a professor at Boston University. I could sit back and, and you know, put on my, you know, robe and smoke my pipe and all that BS, you know. He said, but I, I cannot, based upon what I have stood for and my moral calling, and I don't, the words, I, I, I don't, I can't quote them, but he said his moral calling, he said his religious calling as a son of God, the son of the most high, something like that. I can do nothing else. And he said, I hear the cries of the Vietnamese people. You see, we must learn that morality how to live like that, not how to perform. And because the performance is a veil, 
hiding deep moral insecurity and indeed moral hypocrisy. And when the ruling class appropriates Black Lives Matter, you know it's something wrong there. It ain't about Black life at all or any life. Uh, I think that point about leadership is definitely, is very, very important. Like you, you said it exactly right, that leadership is now it's considered to be more about performance and playing to a crowd and maybe a soundbite or a short clip going viral on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook. But when you look at a king, you look at a person in a, what you could call a protracted struggle yes. over a long period, sacrifice, nights in jail, nights cold, putting his life on, but not never really performed, never bragging about it or be, you know, it was just like very, and all these civil rights heroes like Diane Nash, James, all they're very humble people, despite the fact that they were incredibly brave. They're some of the bravest people ever in, in, in the history of social movements or struggles. Um, and we, you know, it's also, I think about educating the heart, building the heart, that's what they were doing, where you have the heart, of empathy and you have the heart to struggle and withstand blows yes, and uh, you know and, and and take on whoever needs to be taken on in a serious way not in a performative way and you know just one quick thing what king said is it was a calling mm. you understand and he could do nothing it was like a imperative a moral imperative leadership as a calling you know I would prefer not to have to go to jail. I would prefer not to have to leave my little children and wife at home. I would prefer not to be the target of attacks and threats. I mean, certainly, who wants that? Who wants to be killed at 39 years old? But what he said, this is a calling. And we should study that. I think the same thing with uh, Sheikh Mujib, Rahman, a calling, that third dimension of a complete life. Yvonne writes, uh, I agree, Tony, people need to do more listening and reflecting, but they also need to do more reading. Well, it's true. <laughs> That's a part of the reflection. <laughs> I also think uh, Yvonne's comments might be hinting that she wants us to go into the <laughs> Russia and America reading. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, definitely like you're saying, all, all these leaders, I mean, King, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, you definitely could say uh, Sheikh Mujib, over a lifetime, a lifetime of this commitment, not I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow, I'm here today to lead a protest, tomorrow I have a uh, endowed chair at some university. I'm here today, tomorrow I'm in the Biden administration. I'm here today, tomorrow I'm on some world speaking tour. You know, tomorrow I'm opening up an NGO and, and getting grants from the Soros Foundation or whatever. Uh, that's, that's a major problem. Another comment from Purba Chatterjee, she says, uh, I completely agree with what Emily said about having a dream. We were recently reading Aruna Asif Ali, an Indian freedom fighter. And she said with regards to the Vietnam War, 
that the people of Vietnam had shown the world that America or any other imperialism could be defeated if the people were united and prepared to die rather than submit to the enemy. The problem today for most people is that this seems like an alien idea, giving your life for something greater than yourself. In fact, we are never encouraged to believe that there is anything bigger than our individual selves. Dreams are limited to making money and living comfortable decadent lives and the moral imperative is replaced by guilty eroticism. The, the moral imperative is replaced by guilty eroticism. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, uh, actually, Emily put it very well, I, I thought, comparing the mm -hmm. dreams that different people from Bandung have talked about in King's dream because I think it's a very human thing to dream and to want something better. But the question is, who, what do you want and who do you want it for? Just for yourself, just in a narrow way, or do you want it for everyone? Um, and, you know, the problem is that it's, it, things have gotten so neoliberal, individualistic and selfish that even the activism is more about what do I want for myself than what can I give? What can I contribute to? What can I sacrifice? Um, it's a joke I've often heard some people say is that, and maybe you can relate to this, that the younger generation of today, when they get into activism, they want to get paid. The older generation used to pay to get in, pay dues and other stuff to join organizations. We're interested in getting paid, getting grants, and how can we get a salary? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I mean, that's that consciousness, which has been shaped, reactionary kind of consciousness shaped by uh, the universities, by the media, and by all these supposed organizations. Yeah, like movement activity is a career path, mm -hmm. you know, either to the NGO world or maybe to the academic world, mm -hmm. but it, it fits on a CV. Mm -hmm. Oh, I marched with Black Lives Matter over the summer 2020 in uh, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's one of the most absurd things to imagine where movement activity becomes a career path into the ruling class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, then, and then also the, the electoral aspect of it, that if you distinguish yourself in the sup supposed movement activity, you can get hooked up with one of these NGOs, but you can also get elected to city council or Congress or the Senate or whatever and build a Obama was supposed to be the community organizer president, so maybe he set them all the mold, but um they give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's it. I mean it's just like you said, it's a they've turned a movement activity into a path to the room. Well, if uh, no one has anything else to add, we could turn to the reading for today. Jeremiah is going to be. Uh, Jahan, would, would it be appropriate just to say, you know, uh, from a, the standpoint of where we go after today, how we're going to handle mm -hmm. the text itself, you know? Um, yeah, do you want it to say, uh, oh, uh, you mean referring to the further readings after this point? Well, yeah, how we will, you know, kind of um, complete mm -hmm. 
uh, dealing with with this this manuscript mm -hmm. at this point. You know, we can always right. come back. Right. What we want to do is to get as far into this chapter as possible, and then next week conclude with a summary of the final chapter and of the book itself, and 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 perhaps discussion of the uh, current application of this book and these ideas to the struggle. Mm -hmm. Right. And before we start, Nabila also comments, they're clean, yeah, they're cleaning up movement activity, LOL. <laughs> but anyway, we could get started, Jeremy. Yeah, I, I just yeah. wanted to uh, mention, um, uh, I think Tamir Rice's mother how she really called out the Black Lives Matter leadership. Uh, it was really beautiful, actually. And kind of going off of what, um, uh, I think her name was... I think Samaria Rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, like what Miss Joni Allen was saying. Yeah. Um, she said, yeah, she was saying we need an all-people's government. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. or just the consciousness... We need an all people's government. Who said that? Man? Samaria Rice. Samaria uh, Rice. Samir Rice's mom. She's when she was criticizing Black Lives Matter. She it had a really interesting post. I mean, you know, she, and then at the, the end of the last sentence, she said, "We need an all people government." She was basically saying that the Tamika Mallory, who performed, who was part of a performance in the Grammys about Black Lives Matter, Sean King. And a number of these, I think she's also Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors. She was criticizing all of them, saying they're not champions of the people. They're all in it for themselves. And the real problem is uh, the state, basically, she's saying the courts, the president, the Biden administration. But then she ended by saying, we need an all people government, which I, we, I thought was very deep. Um, Whoa. Whoa. Very deep, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, she was exposing the hypocrisy mm -hmm. uh, of all of these people claiming to be supporting her son and her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even I think even she named the lawyer Crump. Yeah, Ben Crump, you're right, yeah. Yeah, the one that, you know, is going all around the country uh, you know, defending people. Nobody gets convicted, but uh, uh, settlements are made, cash settlements mm -hmm. are made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course he gets his off the top. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually uh, uh, she posted on Facebook, which is covered by some press. The first post she said, uh, y'all are not the people's champ. Sean King, Tamika Mallory, Lee Merritt, Ben Crump, Linda Sarsour, Mison Pinto, Patrice Khan, Colors and Crew, question mark, question mark, question mark, stand down, stand by. <laughs> <laughs> and then her other post, uh, which I was mentioning earlier, she said, be mad at the government. They made all this possible when they murder my son, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, and no justice for these stolen lives. They can kiss ass. All people government now, dot, dot, dot. So yeah, she seemed very, and then other people were also commenting, other like survive, other people who lost family members to police brutality and they're agreeing. They're like, you're right, I lost my son, I lost my 
you know, uncle or brother or whatever. And then these people came and they've been doing this. They've been speaking on our behalf. And, and I mean, this thing with the Grammys also, I think it was just all, all just terrible. It's all commodifying um, the suffering of these people who have, still haven't even really had justice. Um, and along with the other horrible performances of the Grammys, uh, I mean, how can you explain this other than to say it's commodification of people's pain and um, of, again, of movement activity? Um, some people I saw were trying to justify it. Some activists saying, oh, no, they're raising attention, raising awareness. But I don't think that's really the case. Mm -mm. Isn't that part of the manipulation? You see, it is the illusion that you know. It's not actual knowledge. Oh, oh, now I know Black Lives Matter. No, you don't. See, it is the fraud of knowledge, yeah. Uh, and of course, like Glenn Greenwald uh, has pointed out, you know, Glenn, the, you know, this great journalist has pointed out the weaponization of LGBT to be used as a political weapon. Oh, I, I have the moral ground, high ground. I'm down with transgender. No, you don't have the moral high ground, whether you're down with transgender or not down with transgender. That is not the central moral question of this moment. It arises to be a part of the central moral question of this moment if it is connected to more than that in itself. It must be, the central moral question is peace and democracy, prevention of war, so you could be transgendered or not transgendered. You could have whatever position you want on that. But if you are a war maker, a supporter of imperialism, it doesn't mean a damn thing. That's what Baldwin taught us. But he's erased these days. All right, uh, so yeah. I'm ready for the screen share. <laughs> sure. Okay, this is my first time. Okay, no worries. So for everyone following along, we're starting on page 225. I believe the link should be in the description uh, of the link to the PDF. I'll re-share re it though in the comments. Nabila also writes, all people's government sounds nice. It's saying that, that I need lawyer to... Name is Chaser. Ah, go ahead. What? It's saying that I need to um, change or change some setting on Zoom. So I might have to leave and then come back. One second. Oh, uh, okay. Zoom issues. Technical issues. Maybe you could say, do you have any uh, doc, any thoughts on what we will, you'd like to share on what we might do after Russia and America? Well, I think Russia and America lays a foundation uh, politically and ideologically. It frames uh, in a broad sense, the moment. And that's, you know, um, 
uh, just, I didn't want to expose this right away. I wanted to surprise people, but um, um, Michelle, Michelle Yu, uh, Emily Dong, uh, Alice Lee and myself, we're planning and been working on this um, for July, a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. And um, so that's, that will be an extension of what we're doing here. And I know that um, uh, Serafina and Jake are working for, for August on a project dealing with Henry Winston. So uh, I think uh, Russia and America is, is grounding ideologically and, and uh, historically for the work we will do on, on China and the work we will do on uh, Henry Winston, certainly on uh, Sheikh Mujib Rahman. Great, great. So uh, Jeremiah, are you ready? Yeah, you guys can see my screen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So page 225. The future of the United States rests largely on our colleges and universities, which train teachers, scientists, physicians, architects, engineers, lawyers, and increasingly legislators, businessmen, and journalists. Despite this, we have been spending a smaller percentage of our national income on higher education each year. In 1932, we spent on colleges and universities 1% of the national income, and in 1947, one half of 1%. We were spending half as much of our national income to educate almost twice as large a proportion of our population. Tuition has increased over 50% since 1941, and the children of the rich have three or four times the chance to go to college as the children of the middle class and poor. Salaries of professors are too low to secure first-class teaching. Of 100 who enter the public schools, only three go to college. Yet some fear these college graduates. The chancellor of the New York Board of Regents recently objected to the belief that the government should provide opportunity for higher education for all who desire it. Quote, we are likely to educate many more men and women than can earn a living in the fields which they have chosen or anywhere else, and they will become embittered with their frustration and will turn upon society and government more effective and better armed in their destructive wrath by the education you have given them. This is the reason that propaganda is directed toward the public schools by big business, the government and military establishments. The National Association of Manufacturers has a well-financed program to influence schools and screen textbooks. The United States gives $100 million a year to colleges, chiefly through the military establishment for research and private industry gives another $25 million in addition. Of the government subsidy, the University of Michigan gets $5 million, Harvard $2,225 million, and Columbia University $3,300,000. This means business and the military influence, if not control, um, much of our higher education and training. But most disturbing today is the press, daily, weekly, and monthly, with news gathering agencies, the films, and the radio. In 1947, a commission headed by the Chancellor of the University of Chicago said, quote, the freedom of the press in the United States is in danger for three reasons. 
its increased importance to the people, the decreasing proportion of people allowed to express their opinions, the inadequate service rendered the people by those who can use it, the habit of those who control the press engaging in practices which society condemns and which it will inevitably try to control. The report added, anybody with nothing to say can say it by mass communication if he has a knowing press agent or a considerable reputation or an active pressure group behind him. Whereas even with such advantages, anybody with something to say has a hard time getting it said by mass communication if it runs counter to the ideas of owners, editors, opposing pressure groups, or popular prejudice. It is clear that wealth in the United States, represented by the large corporations organized for profit, own and control the press and the nation. The small papers and independent magazines are, are disappearing. These periodicals have a difficult, difficult time existing. In the big press, the owners pay fabulous prices for columnists and writers. They gather news from the ends of the earth and color and slant it. They omit what they wish, and in some cases, actually invent and mislead. The periodical press is no longer a forum for ideas and opinions, but chooses writers who agree with their policy or are willing for a price to follow their line of propaganda. Once I wrote a balanced criticism of the effect of Roosevelt's New Deal on the Negro, the magazine editor to whom I sent it wrote back briefly, quote, change this to an attack on Roosevelt and we will publish it. All the newspapers with their enormous circulation and special services must cater to the advertisers who may be indeed their indirect owners. The advertising carried on by the press is one of the nation's biggest businesses and represents immense revenue. Last year, probably $5 billion, I think that's $5 billion, was spent on advertising. This represents not only a tremendous bribe for opinion, news, and silence, but a decisive psychological influence on the public mind. Newspapers, magazines, radio, and television bombard the public with inducements to spend money to such an extent that the public wants things they do not need and often wants them for the wrong reasons. Emotional immaturity is encouraged and waste arises from the aroused demand for useless and harmful things. Almost any product can be sold in America by sufficiently wide, loud, and costly advertising campaign. This is peculiar, peculiarly true in the immense sale, sale of drugs and patent medicines. Chemists are adulterating and poisoning food when the newspapers carry their advertising and the radio spreads their wares. Some of the best known nationally advertised products have been charged with fraudulent advertising and thousands of advertised articles have been proved fakes. The Federal Trade Commission continues to issue these facts 365 days in the year and the press for the most part continue to suppress the news. Our Christmas holiday season has been turned into an orgy of purposeless spending and waste by manufacturers, retail merchants, and their advertising. Thus, American culture has been turned from its higher aims and efforts into a machine for making and selling for profit so as to make and sell again, so that meat is worth more than life and raiment is more valuable than the body. The recent curtailment of civil liberties in the United States is frightening. In 1940, the Smith Bill was passed, which made thoughts liable to suppression. And then came arrests of persons for refusing to reveal confidential data. A congressional committee publicly accused persons without allowing them legal counsel or names of accusers. 
The attorney general of the nation pilloried dozens of organizations as quote, subversive without giving them opportunity for explanation or for defense. Men and women were arrested and jailed for refusing to tattle on friends accused of no crime. Workers were discharged for being accused of believing in communism. Finally, the 11 official heads of the Communist Party were arrested and tried in a court proceeding which had faint semblance of justice. And although no illegal act was even alleged, they and their lawyers were sentenced to jail. The Taft-Hartley Act was passed, re restoring court order of labor unions and limiting the right to strike and bargain. Foreign-born citizens have been threatened and hounded until today, more than 150 non-citizens in 21 states are under arrest for deportation, while 3,000 others are under investigation and 3 million non-citizens and 11 million naturalized citizens live in danger. Investigations and loyalty orders have been made. Civil servants have been investigated with secret trials and arbitrary decisions. Some 83 have been discharged and 900 resigned. The American Civil Liberties Union adds that quote, 1949 witnessed in an unprecedented array of barriers to free association of forced declarations of loyalty, of blacklists and purges, and most menacing to the spirit of liberty of taboos on those social, on those progressive programs and principles which are the heart of any expanding democracy. It is reported that 7,600 employees have been accused and are being investigated. Under President Truman's order 9,835, a person is liable to investigation if he ever spoke against racial and re religious discrimination, attended a social gathering, no matter how large, at which a quote subversive was present, contributed money to help the victims of Franco Spain, owned a low-cost life insurance policy issued by the International Workers' Order, attended a public meeting of the National Negro Congress or any one of the dozens of other legal, loyal, but liberal organizations, talked even to neighbors and friends about controversial issues. A new State Department code of principles was adopted, even more drastic than the loyalty order. The Hollywood writers were intimidated. Mob action prevented meetings of the Progressive Party. Censorship of teachers and students came in universities. Columbia University, the College of the City of New York, Brooklyn College, Hunter College, all banned leading American writers. George Washington University denied a charter to the American Veterans Committee and the Young Progressives. Books of leading authors, living and dead, have been barred, like Arthur Miller, Charles Darwin, Thomas Paine, Louis Aldamick, Stuart Chase, Charles Beard, and others. The University of Washington discharged three professors who had been on the faculty from 18 to 20 years for unorthodox political views. Alger Hiss, Judith Copeland, and the Russian Gubitschev have been tried under pressure of public opinion so that few persons believing them guilty um, of any illegal acts. Harry Bridges has been repeatedly tried and finally convicted on the testimony of hired witnesses. His real crime was the successful leadership of the longshoremen in conflict with the shipping interests. Secret, secret espionage and tapping of telephone wires by government agents have been resorted to until Bernard DeVoto of Harper's Magazine said publicly, quote, representatives of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and other official investigating bodies have questioned me in the past about a number of people and I've answered their questions. 
that's over. If it is my duty as a citizen to know, to tell what I know about someone, I will perform that duty under subpoena in open court before that person and his attorney. This notice is posted in the courthouse square. I will not discuss anyone in private with any government investigator. Almost every strike is called communist inspired. Therefore, the threat of communism becomes a threat of higher wages in the face of increased cost of living. <laughs> the Progressive Party fighting for the Negro vote in the South was promptly branded part of the communist con conspiracy. The crowning indignity comes with the declaration of the Assistant Attorney General of the United States, Weary, who says that if the Supreme Court upholds the conviction of the communist leaders, the Department of Justice will arrest and try uh, 21,105 persons who, quote, appear to be acting in concert with the Russian interests. Finally, there is, con there is before Congress now a bill which a senator thus characterizes, quote, this bill, if enacted, will constitute the greatest threat to American civil liberties since the alien and sedition laws of 1798. Like that bill, it is the product of hysteria and frantic, unthinking fear. Like that bill, it would strike at the very foundations of our democratic institutions, the right of the people to speak their minds, to hear every viewpoint on public questions, and to associate together freely to advance their common views. Like that bill, it merits the opposition of all who cherish liberty. Because the business interests which are dominating the nation see no way of restoring the world market under American domination, except through war on Russia and communism, the United States has become today the greatest military power which the world has ever known and is spending more money for war than any other nation ever spent. For military preparedness, we are spending directly 13 billion trillion dollars a year, indirect expenses like interest on war debts, pensions for veterans, foreign aid, atomic energy and the like, bring, bring the total to at least 31 billion, which is 71% our total outlay. Only 5% of our gross national income goes to such gen general welfare as health, education, housing, agriculture, communications, power and natural resources, and for the regulation of trade and industry. We have never before been an armed nation in time of peace. We have never spent so much money or so much of our income for war. We have never given so much power to military men. This concentration of power is a threat to freedom and the taxes to support it an intolerable burden to the whole nation. Moreover, the kind of war we are preparing for is the most undiscriminating destruction ever envisioned. We propose to kill men, women, and children in unprotected cities in unlimited devastation. Hessler, a former Navy officer warns, quote, the United States alone is building a strategic air force planned to lay waste to cities such as ours. In other words, it is the American concept of strategic air power, which is guiding future war into the pattern of blind devastation. Today, the American people whipped to a false hysteria by anti-communist tom-toms and frightened by horrifying weapons of their own devising have become the world's only nation relying on the arms designed for systematic massacre. The threat of war by mass annihilation is a basic American foreign policy today. Einstein, the world's greatest phys physicist, declares, quote, disarm or we die. He says, 
The idea of achieving security through national armament is at present of military technique, a disastrous illusion. War and preparation for war are driving the nation mad. Science is its captive. There is at present, at present, says the American Association for the Advancements of Science, a tendency in public thinking to relate scientific activity almost wholly to military activity. Edward Condon, who has been dogged and smeared, says that scientists have, been, have probably suffered more than any other group from the post-war loyalty hysteria. The attempt to advocate peace has met every obstacle. Foreigners of highest reputation have been refused visas because they came to advocate peace. Because of the billions of dollars to be spent on war, there is no plan of public works to give, to give employment to the unemployed, no employment insurance, no de decent wage increases, only $4 billion, of the $4 billion of housing for housing when 17 billion are needed. Slums are thus being created quicker than they are being cleared. There is nothing for school buildings, nothing for subsistence for those unable to continue in schools, nothing for scholarships, no disability insurance for young people temporary, temporarily disabled, no maternity benefits for young mothers, no youth centers to provide opportunities for sports and recreation. We hire spies, of course. All nations in this crisis try to find out as much as possible about their neighbors' deeds and actions and aims. But when our, quote, intelligence break breaks down or is exposed, we indignantly deny it and charge foreigners with lying. For such reasons, because our charity, real as, it, real as it is for taxpayers, it's changed by the merchants to profit-making and economic compulsion. It is true, as all travelers can testify, that Americans are hated everywhere in Europe. Their real financial assistance is either not known or it is interpreted as malicious and selfish. Ignorance about America is stronger than ever before among intellectuals and common people. Everything Americans have done and everything they're pl planning to do is vicious. They're ill-mannered imperialistic materialists. What is true in Europe is even more true in Asia and South America. We are relying on the strange belief that our defeat of Japan has turned her into an ally and that the future bastion of American expansion in the Orient will be Japan. This can scarcely be true. Japanese culture is very old and wise. No man like Douglas MacArthur will easily deceive the Japanese. The insults which, which the United States long heaped on this land will not be forgotten in our duty, in our day, nor allayed by mild but strong control. Sometime Japan will be free again. She will regain her efficiency and power. She will never be servant of the West nor of the white race. race. But if she has learned her lesson well, she may yet join China and India in leadership of that Asia, which her outbreak in 1941 sparked into freedom and autonomy. How then shall we lead the world? On one point more than others, our motives and actives are suspect, and that is the treatment of minorities, especially Negroes and colored groups in our democracy. Everywhere in Europe, Asia, and Africa, this crucial test of our profession is known. We can reply that race relations in this land have improved in the last 50 years, but their unsatisfactory condition today simply emphasizes the, de the depth of our guilt in the last quarter of the 19th century. 
Race relations have been bettered, but this has been in large part due to the unremitting efforts of Negroes themselves, who for a generation have been the defenders of democracy in the United States, of which they themselves were so widely deprived. With all this, and with the help of sympathy of thousands of liberal white Americans, North and South, the situation today is not good. The report of the American Jewish Congress and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples and Civil Rights for 40, 1949 says, quote, the darker side of the picture still remains dominant. Segregation continues virtually unbroken in Southern government. Throughout most of the country, racial discrimination governs the sale and lease of housing, while discrimination in employment and education still affects all minority groups. Finally, the international scandal of segregation in the nation's capital persists. In the schools of the nation, textbooks still misrepresent the past. Slavery is depicted as a benevolent institution. Quote, it was often a happy life for the slaves. They had no cares except to do their work well. Again, quote, on the whole, the slaves of the South were considerably well, considerably treated. Or a, new, or a new text published in 1949 says, quote, most of the slaves were happy. They did not want to be free. The president in his campaign promised a program of civil rights for the Negroes in accord with the report of his civil rights committee. He repeats this promise regularly. Two years after this report, not one of its major recommendations has been adopted. States have done something. Eight, uh, eight have laws outlying race discrimination in employment, and 17 prohibit discrimination in schools. But 40 other states have no such employment laws, and 17 make segregation and education compulsory. 18 leaders in American life, including John Dewey, Harry Emerson Fosdick, and John Haynes Holmes, declare that states have segregated school systems, um, that states having segregated school systems expend on average of almost twice as much for the education of a white child as for a Negro child. The existence of segregated schools is in itself a blot on the American public school system. Today, a map of discrimination in the United States shows that in most of the states, segregation and discrimination affecting voting, schools, marriage, or other rights are in force. In some cases, race segregation has been broken down by facts rather than theory. The Battle of the Bulge, Negro, Negro soldiers had to be used along with whites um, to beat back von Rundstedt. In most cases, Americans think that this condition is the rapidly passing result of former slavery and affects but a small part of the nation. But this part amounts to nearly a tenth of the inhabitants and at least a quarter of the working class. Their condition affects the nation and particularly the laboring class. Sorry, there's a dog barking. Um, as low paid, ignorant and sick competitors, they keep down production and wages and their condition increases the income and power of capital. Just as slavery a century ago increased the political power of planters, Northern manufacturers and traders and the British merchants. These race and economic problems in the United States lead to curious paradoxes. It is of course natural that a white American of education and good income should be content with the quote American way of life and look on change or complaint as wrong or even treasonable. But we buy gold feverishly from the slave labor of South Africa 
from the bankrupt economy of war-torn Europe. We run home and bury millions of this in the earth. It sounds like madness, it is madness. We live in a naked, hungry world. Our rich soil raises too much. We pay our farmers to raise less or destroy part of what they have raised. We store the rest in the earth. Our storage bins are already bursting at the seams. This summer, our carryover of cotton will reach 9 billion bales. The carryover of wheat will be 300, 300, 000, 300 million bushels. Of corn, 1 billion bushels. Already the Commodity Credit Corporation, which buys and stores supported products, is close to the limit of its borrowing power. The support program cost $600 million in 1949. This year, its cost will be much higher. Where will this insanity end? Americans have many fine and outstanding qualities. Their, resource, their resourcefulness, their initiative, their keen common sense, their sympathy and generosity, and their sense of human equality. Much of this has been encouraged by the freedom of action and thought, which they have always had, the vast resources of their country, and the beckoning frontier which lasted so many years. But their very virtues have brought reactionary evils. Their, initi their initiative has often been used to, to hurt to the hurt of other, others. They have not recognized as equals many millions of their fellows. Their chance for gain has brought not only vast riches, but deep poverty. And their freedom has often degenerated into license and bad manners. And now the front, that the frontier has disappeared or been transformed from physical limits to mental problems, the old liberty must be curbed by social compulsion, leaving a realm of freedom only in thought and spirit. Just here in thought and spirit, we are now frantically limiting freedom and compelling agreement by threatening all with hunger, loss of status, or conformity. It would seem that either big business will continue to take over control of the United States, or the United States will nationalize the railroads, mines, forests, the telephone and telegraph facilities, the steel and aluminum trusts, the DuPont chemical empire and standard oil. British capital cannot rescue India and American capital will not for cannot can get no guarantee of continued control. Chinese communism can and will save India if, if once it succeeds in saving itself. Then French and British West Africa will pour down the Nile with a new Middle East, rescue dead Egypt and turning back absorb Kenya, the Rhodesias, the Congo, and South Africa. Mexico, South America, and the West Indies, fighting church and capital, will slowly follow, will slowly follow this new world. With industry and state control and the state run for the welfare of all, there will emerge a new freedom in art and literature and a, and a flowering of science not dreamed of since the 17th century. Either this or big business will increase its control of American life and thought and through America will move towards control of the world. A third world war will inevitably ensue and chaos. Each morning now I look around at my country. I see its mountains and cities, its hills and homes, its rivers and cities, its men, women and children. I sigh and ask, where is the land of my dreams of the dreams and faith of so many, many men? Where's the courage and high resolve for a land of the free, a land of refuge for the weak and hunted, the friend of dissent and heresy, the hope, for, the hope of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. 
The land that chained but freed the slave gave votes to women and welcomed the poor and needing, needy from the ends of the earth. What has happened to make her today the great warmonger of the world? Her battleships prowling in Saigon, her, air, her airplanes riding above Libau and, and patrolling the seven seas, her army sitting in Germany, Japan, Greece, Korea, and Alaska. We police the world and scan the stars. We are supermen, masters of everything and rulers of all, and yet afraid of each other, searching, spying, questioning, burrowing into the minds and hearts of men. We fashion weapons madly and thrust them into the unwilling hands of English, French, and Italians and order them where and how to fight and keep fighting. These folks with eyes still wet with tears for the dead and crazy and crippled. We shout defiance and murder to starving, naked, and homeless people. We invent and manufacture death and bury food and gold. We are howling wolves of hate, faring through the world on wire, on telephone, crying and crying again, fight, kill, maim, exterminate. The Antichrist comes, the end of all. Our newspapers take up the tale so that each morning begins poisoned with suspicion and hate. The magazines picture horror, dressed with fashions for spring. We are afraid, afraid, but of what? Of just what? No hostile armies are in miles of us. No ships or planes, save in the minds of idiots, are near us. What frightens us? Why in God's name is this great, rich, secure nation literally scared to death? Right. The obvious answer is Russia. Not the Russia of the czars, we endured that Russia, even with its indecent pageantry, pageantry of royalty, its poverty and illiteracy, its pogroms against Jews. The Russia of the revolution we regarded with pity and contempt, but not with fear. The Russia of Hitler we ignored as of no value for alliance and the sure and easy victims of the invincible German army of godlike Nordics. We watched Soviet victory with disbelief and lend-lease and then with dismay. We hastened to make alliance and gave generous praise to what General MacArthur called, quote, the greatest military effort in history. And then from 1945 until today, all this has turned from distaste to frantic fear. Why? There was a long day when no respectable man of brains and social standing referred to the French Revolution in any terms except of disdain, repulsion, and disgust. Yet the time came when the revolution was recognized as one of the great landmarks of human progress, naturally with mistakes and excesses, but with vast preponderance of good. This may yet mark American attitude toward the Russian revolution, but today as a nation, we loathe and fear it. The Archbishop of York reported after a visit to America that quote, the dread of communism is more common and violent than it is in England, degenerating sometimes into an almost hysterical suspicion of those who hold left views. A composer who had lived in this country for years was deported because his brother was a communist. Shostakovich, the great Russian composer, was refused a hall on the campus of Yale University in which to give a concert. Picasso, one of the world's greatest painters, was refused a visa because as a communist, he wanted to plead for peace. The, the Reverend Hewlett Johnson, Dean of Canterbury, a man of peace and love, who may not set, may not set foot in the United States. Sydney Webb, when Sydney Webb, the great British socialist died, 
American reviews made no mention of his monumental study of Russia. Repeated attacks have been made on Einstein because of his mild socialism. A Reed, Reed Admiral says, a rear. Oh, a rear admiral says, if Einstein doesn't like Americanism or nationalism, then he should go back where he came from and try Mr. Hitler again. An article on Harper's Magazine on September 1947 by Henry Steele Commager, professor of history at Columbia University, depicts not only the intelligence of the average American teacher, but, all, but his courage and independence as well. Quote, May 6, 1947, a Russian-born girl gave a talk to the students of the Western High School of Washington, DC. She talked about Russia, its school systems, its public health program, the position of women, of the aged, of the workers, the farmers, and the professional classes, and compared some American and Russian social institutions. The speech reprinted for us in the congressional record does not disclose a single disparagement of anything American, unless it is a quasi-humorous reference to the cost of having a baby and of dental treatment in this country. She said nothing that any, that any normal person could find objectionable. Quote, her speech, however, created a sensation. A few students walked out, walked out on it. Others improvised placards proclaiming their devotion to Americanism. Ind indignant mothers telephoned their protests. Newspapers took a strong stand against the outrage. The District of Columbia Committee went into a huddle. There were demands for house cleaning in the whole school system, which was obviously shot through and through with communism. About 98% of the daily reporting of news from Eastern Europe is unfavorable of them. Only in a few papers, the truth may appear in a feature article of the Sunday edition or in a special article on the editorial page. Erroneous facts about Russia are made and reiterated so that they are received as gospel. An Air Force general said at a Washington hearing that all that was necessary to subdue Russia was to let Russian soldiers see the West, quote, there, there those boys would see a way of life, a freedom, a dignity of the individual that they never imagined before. It would be psychological warfare at its best. Stalin would lose control and he could not discipline them. Russia doesn't like the system she is living under. And once the Red Army sees a better way of life, Stalin will never get it back under totalitarian control again. The Red Army will, dis will dis disintegrate in Europe." End quote. Continual, quote, factual statements are made of Russian labor, that Russians work 81 hours to earn what Americans earn in 10. Any story favorable to Russia is printed in the United States. The effort to, sh to show communism as criminal is repeatedly printed. But worse than this popular impression of Russia, of the Soviet Union, rife in the United States, is the acceptance of this picture by the leaders of thought in the United States. Secretary of, Secretary of State Dean Acheson offered peace to the Soviet Union. He said, quote, good and evil can and do exist concurrently in the whole great realm of human life. Therefore, the United States being good and the Soviet Union being evil can possibly live together. Thereupon, he accuses Russia of keeping Germany, Japan, and Austria from being, quote, free countries, of keeping in various nations by military force and under a regime which their people do not want, of refusing to assent to control of atomic weapons or to disarmament, 
of subverting friendly government, of not treating diplomatic officials with respect, of lying to Russians about the United States and the world. There has not been in modern history a more deliberately insulting, quote, offer of peace. No person who really wanted peace would have couched an offer in such terms, even if he himself believed the accusation. Frank Graham, an outstanding liberal, says, quote, totalitarian tyranny must sometime give way to human freedom, now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, but never dead within the human spirit. In the editorial of the New York Times, it is stated that the Russian system has been able to win its victories by representing itself as a, quote, new and higher type of democracy, which is to enrich the underprivileged at the expense of the possessing classes and therefore, and thereby bring true freedom to all. In actual practice, it has only brought misery to those who have come under its sway. And the, and the reason that has done, the, done so is that its use of the word democracy is as fraudulent as its promises. Under such a system, there can be neither in self-government nor freedom, but only the most rigid and stifling regimentation of all phases of a nation's life. To make this regimentation obsolete, the communist dictatorship openly espouses terror as the best means of mass control. It carries its distaste even to refusing any restraint on Formosa to stop bombing of American vessels. Quote, in actual practice, the overwhelming force of wrathful American opinion would prevent the United States from using its proud Navy to open up a supply line for the Chinese communists. Common, dec common decency would prevent us from stooping so low. Bertrand Russell tells Americans that east of the Soviet the east of the Iron Curtain, quote, all that has made Europe valuable to mankind is extinct. And the Iron Curtain, alas, is capable of moving westwards. He puts the issue of war or peace on the Russians and rests, he puts the issue of war or peace on the Russians and rests his hopes on civilization, military preparedness, and the Atlantic Pact. Our representative in the United Nations said, quote, confidence in Soviet pledges has been undermined by the experience of the past few years. To find cause for concern, it is not necessary to recall this, the friendship pact with Nazi Germany or the Soviet non-aggression pact with Finland, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. We need only look at the long, unhappy list of broken Soviet pledges that has grown since we have been engaged in the common effort to create the United Nations. The principle of unanimity of the five permanent members of the Security Council is based on the assumption that they will cooperate toward a common goal of peace. But the Soviet Union has twisted that principle into a weapon of obstruction and sabotage of world peace, end quote. Enemies of Russia have, very, have every facility of publicity given them in our press and radio, quote, any disgruntled journalist or diplomat or engineer or so-called general or incompetent employee or a correspondent expelled from the Soviets for having lied about them, any dismissed incompetent technician, any scoundrel, swindler, or careerist, any abominable or repugnant character, any international renegade, criminal, derelict, or outcast, any adventurer or unsuccessful writer, any semi-socialist, anyone who has failed in everything, is sure to reestablish his fortune by defaming the Soviet Union. The American press, the American magazines, the American editors hold their arms wide open to them, and the, feeble mind, and the American feeble-minded public embraces them 
receives them warmly and enthusiastically and generously displays its purse to them. Even Henry A. Wallace, leader of the Progressive Party, declares both the United States and the Soviet Union are, quote, brutes of force. Both countries' policies rest on the doctrine of force. The Soviet Union uses one kind of force, the United States another. Both countries interfere in affairs of the other nations. Both, certain of the righteousness of their cause, are plunging headlong toward mutual destruction. Communism is continually described as a conspiracy of ruthless scoundrels. The Republic can say, quote, communism is an international conspiracy aiming at worldwide dictatorship and the suppression of religious, political, and economic freedoms throughout the world. It corrupts ideals, corrodes basic religious teachings, destroys the fiber of, a, of man and denies the existence of God. It is imperative that the nations of the world develop new methods to offset this frontal attack on civilization. Another widespread accusation is that Russia is a slave state with all liberties curtailed and millions in labor, labor concentration camps. The vice president said on April 15, 1950, the propagandists for this foe claim to be apostles um, the propagandists for this foe claim to be apostles of freedom, yet in their so-called labor camps are more slaves than have ever been kept in bondage by any nation at any time in the history of the world. No citizen is free from searches and seizures of the secret police. Trial by unimagined tortures take the place of trials by jury. There is no freedom of expression, no freedom of the press, no freedom to worship in one's own way no freedom of enterprise, no freedom to enjoy the profits of one's labors. Especially, it is said, there is no democracy or freedom of election, end quote. Communism is often described as deliberately false doctrine, which takes advantage of poverty and distress with impossible promises. At the end of the Second World War, the rearmament of Germany was held to be the greatest threat to the peace of the world by General Marshall Eisenhower and others. Today, however, General Montgomery is preparing to create a Nazi army. The British Foreign Office believes this is inevitable. The United States generals cannot say so publicly, but privately they agree that a revived Germany of some sort must be put into the field against Soviet Russia and that our armed forces are in Germany to protect the West against the East. A leading newspaper says in an editorial, we cannot question the necessity for adequate security measures if we cannot protect our country against military aggression, then we may not long have any civil or economic rights to worry about. Disarmament is no solution. In a community of lambs, the wolf will rule. Bernard M. Baruch called for a military establishment able to strike, quote, immediately, ensure prompt retaliation and deter aggression, and also to deal with possible civil war abroad. Secondly, a mobilization plan which will act swiftly with all our resources, men and money and material in case we or our allies are attacked. Third, organization of spies to provide information. Fourth, a general staff to formulate global strategy. There is a less definite but very general charge that the Russians are liars, murderers and conspirators whose every word and act are suspect. At the center of all red baiting today, stands the charge that all communism and all communists are agents of a foreign power. So in 1928, 
it was said that Alfred, Alfred E. Smith could not be president because he would be sub, subservient to a foreign power. And finally, it is said that the Soviet Union is not democratic, but totalitarian without real elections or popular government. Such would seem to be the overwhelming opinion of leaders of American public opinion today. But there are opposing views. The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom said at the hearings on the Atlantic Pact, quote, during the past four years, we have appropriated more than $500 billion for their use to build up a stockpile of atom bombs, maintain an air force to deliver the bombs in large quantity anywhere on the globe, maintain the largest military force of manpower in our peacetime history, finance peacetime military conscription in this country, and build mil military bases all over the world. No military machine is worth a nickel without an enemy, and the avowed enemy of our military leaders is communism and the spread of the Russian orbit. We contend that despite the almost unlimited resources at their disposal, our, our military leaders have failed to achieve their avowed purpose, and for two basic reasons. Communism, one, communism, like democracy or Christianity, is an ideology against which no military machine or threat of force can be successfully pitted. Two, Economic poverty breeds communism, and by voting UNRRA out of existence, and by diverting our resources to enormous military preparations, including this even more conscienceless step of paying for the machines of mass murder for whole sections of war-gutted Europe, we are indirectly responsible for the very conditions in which communism is flourishing in the war-ravaged nations of the world. This is a wicked proposal born of greed and self-interest, which will largely accrue to the conscienceless benefit of a handful of both American and European <laughs> In the long run, such temporary benefits will work to the advantage of such have-not regimes as Russia, China, and other Iron Curtain and similar backward countries of the world, and give further strength to the contention of our military leaders, that we should further tax our economic and social resources for ever increasing militarism, end quote. When the president ordered the Atomic Energy Commission to make hydrogen bombs, Congress and the public praised the decision, but 12 leading atomic scientists said that few of the men who publicly urged the, the president to make this decision can realize its full import. No nation has a right to such a bomb, no matter how righteous its cause. The bomb is no longer a weapon of war, but a means of extermination of whole populations. Its use would be a betrayal of all standards of morality and of Christian civilization itself. Russia's record on atomic armaments is morally stronger than America's. Russia has dropped no bomb. She has amassed no huge stockpile of bombs. She has not threatened other nations with the bomb or used it in a form of pressure. Instead, Soviet leaders have insisted that they will not use the bomb as a weapon of attack and that they will build only enough bombs to protect their own nation. The result of the fight which the United States is, take, is making against socialism and communism in defense of American business methods is shown by the astonishing fact that this policy has forced us into alliance with nearly every reactionary nation and movement on earth. Even when this policy is against our wish and past traditions, we are upholding decadent and corrupt monarchy in Greece land monopoly in Germany. We're helping fascist Turkey equip an army. 
We have welcomed the reactionary Shah of Iran. Our trade is the chief support of Rhodesia and the Belgian Congo. We favor and help arm Pakistan over India. We have poured treasure and military aid into nationalist China and are now in military alliance with the puppet Baodai in French Indochina and have raised no finger to aid the peasants of Madagascar. We have defended the landlords of Southern Korea and the present inept regime in the Philippines. We, give, we gave the Dutch more help in Indonesia than we gave the native government. In the West Indies, we have given more help to the dictator of the Dominican, of the Dominican Republic than to Haiti. We have given Mexico little support and even more to the Argentine and to Chile and to other reactionary regimes in South America. Wherever in the world there is power, poverty, hunger, and distress fighting against vested interests and land monopoly, there is the United States, in nearly every case, aiding and abetting the oppressor. This is not the real intention of America. It is not in accord with the genius, the genius of our institutions. It is a fatal paradox into which big business and industrial monopoly in this nation have land, has landed us, camouflaged as a, flight, as a fight against world evil. So here we stand. The obvious next step for thinking people is light and more light. We must know facts. What is Russia today and what are her plans? This reduces itself to, ans to answers to these questions. One, how much per personal freedom is there in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics? Two, is the Soviet Union giving its people real education? Three, even if we grant that Russia has a successful system of popular education, is there any democracy in the Soviet government with popular election to office? Does not the one-party system show that this cannot be true? Four, has the Soviet Union been able to carry on a planned socialist economy for Russia with state control? Five, is the Soviet Union a slave state? Six, does the Soviet Union suppress religion? Seven, does the Soviet Union today represent an aggressive and expanding imperialism? Eight, is it true that the Soviet Union has driven out race prejudice? Nine, how far does the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics restrict art and literature? 10, how free is science in the Soviet Union? Whether or not Russian communism is a success is beside the point. The point is, are the ideals of human uplift as conceived by Karl Marx and Nikolai Lenin ideals which ought to be realized? If so, how can they best be realized? Even if, even if communism has, as tried in Russia had completely failed, it was a splendid effort, a magnificent vision. Moreover, if it has failed, and insofar as it has not reached complete success, the reason is crystal clear. It is a long and contemptible effort of the civilized world to prevent its success by every possible means of slander, sabotage, and war. Ruling classes have always used the tactics of smearing against those who threaten their status. They accuse the group of all manner of infamies and crime and treat as criminals all who can be directly or indirectly associated with it. This tactic was widely used against the Christians under the Roman Empire. Nero, it is said, was induced to denounce Christians as the authors of the burning of Rome, quote, to perpetuate the popular feeling for none others were so detested for their strange and mischievous superstitions, were so generally held guilty of the most abominable crimes of the crime indeed of hatred toward the whole human race, end quote. The same tactics were used against the French and American revolutions. 
It will be the aim of the next chapter on Russia to answer these 10 crucial, crucial questions. That's the end of the chapter. Great, great. I guess that's a good place to end the reading. Well, uh, like we've said last week, so so much of what he said, which he said so poetically, it beautifully feels like it was written about now, written about today. Um, one thing which really stood out to me was uh, first uh, his discussion about how there is kind of a reactionary transformation happening in that period. He talked about how it's some of the founding ideals of the U.S., some of the positive elements of it. And he talked about how the U.S. has never been an armed nation in times of peace. And that's actually something very interesting that I think most people have forgotten because we've had like 70 or 80 years of being the biggest, most ferocious military in the world that part of the ideal of the American Revolution was they were arguing that it's a ter only tyrannical powers like the British Empire would keep a permanent army. And that's why in the Bill of Rights and stuff, there's points about uh, not having to quarter soldiers in your home. And that's also part of the idea behind the Second Amendment originally, that you would have militias and you would have them, whenever there's a time of war, you would raise an army of men. And then when the war was over, you would just demobilize the army because the, they argued that uh, it would just be tyrannical. The central government could do whatever it wanted with the standing army. And even until until this time, the US, I think in the previous decade, in like the 20s and 30s, was like num in the number 20 something in terms of the size of its army in the world. But after this, the Department of Defense was created, this whole military industrial complex, the Department of Defense, the Air Force, the CI, the Central Intelligence Agency, other intelligence agencies, the, basically the modern Pentagon, all of that comes from this uh, period. So I thought that was very interesting that he pointed to that fact. Um, and then uh, this point about Truman's orders also, I thought was very interesting the, the, that Truman had specifically said that anyone who talked of racial discrimination should be considered a subversive or a communist. And then anyone who was in a gathering with people who, uh, with someone with, in a gathering of people, one of whom may have been a subversive was themselves a subversive. <laughs> so it's like a huge part of the population. <laughs> you know, talk about guilt by association. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, and then you can directly understand why people like King were opposed to anti-communism because it was, literally it would just be so destructive to any movements. Um, and then the, his discussion of Asia, I thought was very interesting what he talked about, his predictions about Asia. I think some of them may, may be being borne out. He talked about Chinese communism would be the savior of Asia basically. Then he talks about the from Asia to Africa and then to South America. It kind of Doc was saying earlier before we started about how that it might be this kind of domino of revolutions or domino of you know the rise of these places. But those are some of my thoughts. Well, you know, and 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 really, this idea that the rise of the war machine was an attack upon democracy, that you could not have freedom and democracy and uh, a permanent war, a uh, permanent preparation for war. And that's what we have been 
for 80 years. And that's what we are now, constantly preparing for war and not just for war with another army, but wars to destroy other societies and wipe out tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. There cannot be democracy where this is the overarching project of the politics and culture. And that's why you must distract the people with culture that attacks the spirit, the moral standing, which attacks children. And children must be seen as potential uh, cogs in a war machine. Yeah, I, you could say more, but you see how grotesque this society has become. And why I guess it's so necessary that we constantly return to King's why oppose the war in Vietnam. It's the template to understand the either or, the existential and moral choice that we all must make. And again, I, I say, you know, you can't claim I didn't know. If we condemn the Germans who let Hitler rise under the claim, I didn't know, you know, well, we must condemn those Americans and those leaders and those politicians and those academics who always are going to, well, I didn't know. If I had known, uh-uh, don't, your didn't know is not an excuse. Is this a bit about the raising children for war also? I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's really difficult to grapple with this. I mean, the sadness of that, that you have this kind of poverty draft, especially I think after the war in Vietnam, after the draft during Vietnam, the fact that it kind of backfired and led to mass resistance, mm -hmm. they have relied more on a kind of a poverty draft for people who have no other opportunities. Uh, they join the military and then also, you, actually, the U.S. has one of the largest uh, recruitment of basically what legally would be called child soldiers, because you can sign up when you're under 18, I think 16 or 17, you can actually be recruited and sign with your parents' permission, you can join the military. And so in these, like, low-income schools and stuff, I mean, maybe Catherine would know more about this, but, uh, like, they have military recruiting, and they're kind of targeting these people. And they don't, I mean, these young people don't really know, even know what they're signing up for. Then they're out there in these, you know, global war zones and putting their lives on. And so of course, yeah, this culture, like these video games, all the video games are about war and shooting. In fact, I used to, there used to be some TV channels, or I guess they still are about video games. And when I used to watch them, they would constantly have ads about uh, the US Army, US Marine Corps, and even professional sports often, US Marine Corps, US Army, because they know like particularly young men are watching it and that's who they wanna recruit for, for these uh, military adventures. 
Oh, I also wanted to ask Catherine to speak on the International Women's International League on Peace and Freedom. I just wanted to, because that was her organization, I think, that she was a part of. So in addition. Well, let me uh, uh, speak on the um, military coming to the schools. So uh, for high schools, military would come into the high schools. Counselors would invite them to come into the high schools, particularly uh, to um, uh, speak with seniors who were making decisions about their future. The other piece is that uh, schools uh, were allowed to give the phone numbers, addresses, et cetera, of senior and junior students to the military. We could not give it to anybody else, but we could give it to the military. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, and they would recruit uh, as early as 11th grade and young people would sign up. My granddaughter even signed up, unfortunately, because she was in love and her boyfriend was in the military. So she signed up to join the military only to find out that she didn't like it. And uh, it was uh, really a chore to get her out of that situation. And she um, uh, got out, but she was, uh, she was labeled, she got out for military reasons, but she was labeled as someone who, um, uh, she didn't get a good discharge, let me just say that. It wasn't a dishonorable discharge, but it was just a step above. <laughs> Uh, discharge. And so our young people would get locked into that kind of situation, thinking for whatever reason, love or whatever, or even the young men looking for uh, a career, if not a career, a way to be in the military for four years and get a scholarship to go to college, etc. You know, so they sign up. Uh, and then when they get in there, they see how, how um, draconian the system is. I mean, you are not an individual you are not treated with regard or with respect. You are part of the military. You are part of their cog in the wheel, or so to speak. And so you are not at all uh, considered human. You're, you're just something and somebody that's the, uh, disposable. So that's, so that's that piece. Now, I don't, I think at some point there were schools, my school included, who didn't let them in. We didn't invite them. Okay, and, and the other piece was, particularly I think after Vietnam, even though there was a resurgence of uh, the military coming into the schools, it was very clear that Philadelphia lost a significant number of black young men to yeah. that war. Yeah. Uh, and the other piece is that when they went into the military, uh, they did not realize the dreams that they were told or showed. And, and so, Fewer and fewer black men uh, were recruited. Um, fewer and fewer black men chose to go into the military. Uh, and same thing with uh, black women as well. Uh, you know, so I think that now because of COVID and a lot of other stuff, um, they're not uh, recruited as much. The other piece is United States now has their, um, these uh, mercenaries that they use. Uh, and they and they're they maintain a standing army, but they did reduce that army for for whatever reason. And they do use the um, mil, uh, they do use the mercenaries. And they've used them in Iraq. Uh, 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 they may have used them in Afghanistan, etc. They the the standing army. 
that they want to maintain does not necessarily need to include from their perspective, uh, uh, young black folk who they may not be able to depend on, which is good, all right? Uh, so in terms of the Women International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF, they used to have an office on um, uh, Ray Street around between uh, 12th and 13th, I think, 13th. And uh, they were part of that movement in Philadelphia, um, that international movement for peace and freedom in the 60s and the 70s and in the 80s. Uh, and I connected with Wolf when we were working, uh, doing our anti-apartheid work. Uh, and so at the time, uh, Winnie Mandela wrote a book about Nelson Mandela. And part of my soul went with him and she documented uh, his arrest and his uh, detainment at Robben Island. And it became a hit, uh, not only in Philadelphia, but I think internationally. And Wilf was one of the organizations that sponsored that book and got a lot of people reading that book. But they also talked about and were present in schools and uh, had forums around banning the bomb and uh, disarmament, et cetera. So, Philly had a rich history and engagement with the peace movement and anti-war movement of which Wilf was one of them, as well as an anti-imperialist uh, uh, focus, uh, you know, in terms of what the United States was doing and a support of, of uh, the anti-apartheid movement of which they were part of. That history in Philly is gone and the peace movement along with it, unfortunately. I think Wilf exists, but I don't see, uh, I see remnants of it, but it's not of the caliber that it had been. Catherine, what about women's strike for peace? You know, I, Tony, I- And the World I, Peace Council. The World Peace Council, yeah, I was part of that too. Friends of the Soviet Union, you know. You, <laughs> oh, wow, you gonna get locked up. No. <laughs> <laughs> Friends Don't of the Soviet me, Union. <laughs> Don't ask me if I have a file, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't even want to know. I don't care. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was called the U.S. Soviet Friendship Society. It was the U.S. Soviet Friendship Society, yes. <laughs> but we were all connected because it was all one. It was all the struggle against- A lot of times the same people. Same people, that's true. But there were, so we weren't small groups of people. It was just that we kind of all converged, you know, uh, the anti-war movement, uh, the peace movement, the the, the uh, U.S. Soviet Friendship Committee. <laughs> uh, oh God, the Vincent Ramos Brigade. Oh boy, tell me about that. <laughs> oh yeah, it was, so we kind of like all converged and we did similar work. But the other piece was that that uh, we did link it to what we were doing at home and the, the struggle that needed to be waged at home and had been waged, uh, you know, by people, Paul Washington, of course, and oh God, uh, Cecil B. Moore, uh, uh, oh God, um, uh, you know the guy. Lou Blackwell. Lou Blackwell, who's the state legislator? Uh, uh, well, Dave Richardson from time to time. Dave, Dave Richardson, uh, people like that. And, and uh, so we had that rich history. We had opportunity. Young people did engage. 
uh, they came into the schools. The schools were a place where uh, uh, we um, engaged youth and recruited youth. So it was a good time, but all of that has now gone. And Tony and I are probably the, the uh, last uh, one standing. <laughs> we're the last one standing out here doing this work with our gray hair, you know, <laughs> so. Gray Afro. Yeah. Gray Afro, yeah. <laughs> so. I ain't gonna stop talking to you. Go ahead. Yeah. But anyway, so so that's it with education in the military. You, you didn't mention the American Friends Service Committee. Oh my God, I forgot. And how they vacillate. Oh yeah, they did vacillate from, uh, yeah, they vacillated, but um, uh, yeah, they did vacillate. They were not as clear as that we needed them to but be. They were anti, see, was that anti-communism? Anti it was institute. So they were for peace, but they were anti-communist. And, and that's what divided the peace movement with the, you know, that I associated with, with other uh, movements for peace. And even today, when you look at the um, uh, peace movements and the anti-war movements, you have, you see the anti-communist uh, uh, tenor, which actually influences why they cannot raise the moral questions to the extent that they need to. Right, right. You, know, you cannot be, right. uh, you know, you cannot use Russia as as an attack. You cannot attack Russia and China uh, and say you're about uh, peace. Yes. You yes. say you're about war. Uh, you know, recently, I responded to somebody regarding gentrification, and um, and May had mentioned how. This person had mentioned how gentrification, we need to be mindful that, you know, when you work against gentrification, you also kind of get parochial and they then try to raise it internationally and use uh, land bases or land masses like uh, China and, and Russia. And we didn't want to get like that. And so then my response- Wait a minute, explain, wait a minute. can you just explain that one more time? They, they, they don't want to be, they didn't want people who are uh, fighting against gentrification. They didn't want us to become parochial. Just look at what we thought was good for us. All right. Because then you develop a dictatorship mentality and, and, and you carry on that mentality and they rush and they reference Russia and the Soviet union. <laughs> Lord have mercy. I know, I know, wow. I know, and then they I spoke the, about the layout, man. <laughs> I know they're crazy, so I, I mean, right to Excuse me for laughing. I can't. I know it, it, it gets crazy, and it's gotten crazy. Wow. So I linked the struggle for self determination and liberation uh, between communities in the United States and in Philadelphia with the struggles internationally. And and what the the Chinese people and the and the people of Russia are standing up for in order to protect the right for nations to self determination, be they you know a nation within a nation, be it a community or whatever. And so I was happy to hear that there's a ninety percent home ownership in China. All right, I, you know, and so because these folk don't believe that people own homes in China, yeah. or would want to own homes in China. I mean, it's a whole different way of looking at everything. And so my position was, listen, if you're going to fight gentrification in Philadelphia, then how about fighting for maintaining the liberation of peoples across the globe? How about linking with China and how about linking with Russia, you know, and looking at what they're doing with their people? 
you know, and, and observing and, and actually honoring the right of people to self-determine their destiny. That's what anti-gentrification struggle is about in Philadelphia and across the states. So I didn't get a response. Well, I can tell you this, when you listen to some of these movement people, you don't need to look at Saturday Night Live. No, no. I mean, no. this is more, I mean, I can't, I can't even understand how they went there. But anyway, you, you know. Gentrification is a global movement. It is global. But it's in the capitalist countries. Yes, yes. And that's why they mentioned China and, and Russia. Oh, they gentrified over there, okay. Uh, because it is a global, so they can't do, what they do in Europe, they can't do in China and in Russia. So, so and so, uh, you know, they then, China and Russia would be the nemesis for their brand of anti-gentrification work, uh, basically because- But, but, but Catherine, the anti-gentrifiers are themselves gentrifiers. Well, see, that's the other piece. They, they, right, are, okay. <laughs> they, they are the ones that want to build density. Uh, density is big, density, uh, and drive out home ownership. Home ownership is wrong, renting and renters, you know, and the other pieces at the same time that they're talking about this, the, uh, I will call them high rise, which is our cities that they want to build are not affordable. The average person who are rent, who would be renting could not afford them. They're like fifteen. They're like, they may be a thousand to fifteen hundred to almost twenty five hundred a month. They're smaller. They're cheaper. Uh, we can take these big houses that we have now. They can become apartments. Are they? You know, there's a lot of housing stock, and we have a lot of density in Philly. So, but we also have space, and so people can because they talk about walkability. People can walk around and enjoy their communities, uh, basically, rather than uh, live in these high rises, which are built after they tear down communities. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's- Yeah, yeah. excuse my laughter. No, that's all right. But Magna would know, she's doing the study. <laughs> yeah. and I, I mean, I learned it from you, but I mean, the other thing is the New York piece, like a lot of these people are coming from New York, transportation, that means, a line from North Philadelphia, North Central District. They want to build an Amtrak from North Philly near Temple to New York so people can commute. It's just, it really is like science fiction, like you said. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it, the, the, old, the dream, I mean, the dream of owning one of these beautiful houses and, you know, having a place for your children, having a community, um, you know, having, having room, having a place to like think and grow and have your own, like, you know, decorate your house, make it beautiful for yourself. Um, it's just, yeah, it's really. And the sense of a community, yeah. living in a community. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's so important. Like, you know, Tony's community, which they have. I've been, uh, I've been gentrified, I've been gentrified. You know, and the people who used to live there are no longer there, cannot afford to live there. The children cannot afford to live there. I mean, this is, um, uh, it is unbelievable. They are destroying a city, That's uh, right. basically, uh, only because, uh, 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 and merely because, and especially because land and home ownership, land, owning land and buying up land, you know, has been, as a commodity now. Mm -hmm. They don't want to put their money in the stock market, so they're now putting their money in pur purchasing property and land. Right. Uh, 
And also what you said, I mean, these multi-rises, people aren't living there. They're just sitting vacant. I mean, it's, we're on the verge of this bubble bursting. That's and right. then I think you said it's, it's all going to become a slum. I mean, this all these luxury the, apartments, you're so the, right about that. This is I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's what, you know, it is. They're, they're cheaply built. Yeah. When you walk past them, you can see that they're cheaply built with these tiles by temple, a lot of the, the dorms of temple. All right, the red and white tile buildings, uh, they're, they're ugly constructions uh, and uh, they're impersonal constructions. And it's a way of separating us. Yeah. You know, it's a way of dividing humanity. They're not building and, and supporting humanity. They are dividing us. The renters are not part of the community. The community is being, um, uh, the, the residents that own homes are being chased out. Even the residents who are renting are being chased out for these new high-rise uh, apartments uh, that are smaller, uh, have more density, in which people don't associate with each other and don't know anything about each other. It's dangerous as well. There's no eyes on the street. When you talk about crime in a neighborhood, eyes are on the street, you know, and neighbors talk. In yeah. the high-rise, that does not happen. Oh, that yeah. does not happen at all. So it's very impersonal. It's very interesting to hear from Catherine about this continuing uh, anti-communism and basically like imperialist mm -hmm. mindset, even among the people doing anti-gentrification work. And I can I can imagine who some of those people are. But also, uh, I think uh, I mean it's it's significant for us to push back like we're doing and, and explain because uh, what they don't understand is that well, one like. Uh, everyone was saying this dream of home ownership that it's such a great I was just looking up and it's a great achievement that according to the People's Bank of China which is the public central bank of China China has reached 96 percent home ownership which may be the largest highest level of home ownership in history now they, they're saying no the average rate of home ownership in the western countries is 60 percent they've reached 96 percent in China and uh, I know the statistics are sim you know it's pretty high in Cuba and I think Vietnam also the other socialist countries um, and but the, the the thing the thing is that the what the western banks want to do is eliminate the system in China which is stopping this kind of predatory lending and allow the finance capital of the west to go and break in and get their fingers into the Chinese masses and start doing gentrification at the level that they're doing here there so this kind of narrative which tries to say you know which ignores that i mean it's it's enabling the the um w w the strategy of uh, finance capital to, to mm -hmm. do that stuff because because they don't understand that china is a lot of the activists in the u.s don't understand don't want to understand china's socialist market economy that yes they have markets but the mm -hmm. socialist aspect is that the banking is all you know, almost entirely publicly driven there's no there's very little room for any kind of this predatory stuff or, or for any of these wall street banks to do the kind of shenanigans they do here over there in fact they have the death penalty only for financial crimes good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. well i mean well also i mean the redlining here a bank a nationalized bank protecting against redlining you know giving everybody loans i mean that is really safeguarding democracy i mean 95 that's I mean, what the, everybody has access to home ownership, you know, not just the elite or just privileged minorities, everybody has it. And 
it's making China a more democratic country. Uh, and yet they say it's undemocratic. I mean, it's, it's just very ironic. So it's the uh, age old crisis, the housing question under capitalism. And one of the things that, um, uh, that Frederick Engels raised in his, one of his works on the, the, uh, uh, the housing question is the test of capitalism as a system is can it resolve the housing question? And what we are seeing is, we'll answer it, no, it cannot. Gentrification is not even just moving the chairs around on a sinking ship, it's exacerbating the housing problem because as gentrification moves forward, I don't care whether San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Manhattan, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, wherever, gentrification causes more homelessness, you know? And um, so, so the questions get back to the system itself, the economic system. And, uh, and so city planning, the planning of cities like we see in this is why, you know, city council, we got so many black people. Yeah, we got a lot of black people, but you're not doing nothing. You know, you're sitting up there bullshitting. But the planning for Philadelphia is planning Philadelphia to make it more comfortable for the University of Pennsylvania, Temple, Drexel, and the elites associated with these institutions. And so, Philadelphia is what Michael Lynn calls a hub, a hub, but Philadelphia is two cities. There's the hub, the center, and then there's the hinterland, West Oak Lane, Southwest Philadelphia, you know, uh, and the hinterland of poverty and damn near or close to homelessness with high levels of unemployment. Right, and then and if there was an alternative state, a different kind, people state, all people government, we say they, they could easily solve this housing question. Absolutely. For example, in the People's Republic of China, I think from 2000 to about 2010, just in that 10 year period, they were able to, through a, a planned transition, build enough adequate housing for a, about 300 million people who migrated from the rural areas to the urban areas of China. And so if they could do that, 300 million people, that's almost the entire population of the United States. We could easily uh, put our resources, instead of building $100 billion nuclear missiles into resolving this housing question. And we could, we could solve a lot of the cities could be less overcrowded. We could plan to populate areas that are depopulated, deal with this deindustrialization a lot of these issues could be resolved relatively easily with an alternative state, alternative system of governance. See, but is, isn't this, here it is, here it is after all. The fight against anti-communism is the fight, part of the fight for peace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because the justification for this huge military and these weapons is that there's a criminal movement out there called communism. 
And, you know, it was one of the most um, difficult things for me in the movement is to see movement people espousing anti-Sovietism and anti-communism. You know, usually it was done, well, that, that's why Du Bois is so hard on Trotsky. One of the principal sources of anti-communism is Trotskyism. You know, non, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an anti-Stalinist revolutionary, which is another way of saying I'm an anti-communist revolutionary, which, which is another way of saying, in essence, you're nothing. There is no anti-communist revolutionaries because, well, you know, the equation is clear. The logic is clear. So peace, without peace, there cannot be freedom. There cannot be rights. You know, you see what I'm saying? Gay rights, trans rights, black rights, Asian, none of that can be realized without the fight against the war machine and the preparation for war. You know what I'm saying? You can't have it. You can't even have an intelligent conversation about any of this. As long as you have this military budget hovering over our heads and the ideology which justifies it. See, this is, this, this is where, you know, like take my man Cornell West. I'm down with you, I love you to death, but you're wrong. You're wrong. The way you formulate things. See, you can't roll with Bernie uncritically. You got to stop Bernie at some point and say, wait a minute, money. Okay, hometown, I like that you want Medicare for all. I like this, you know, you know, all this, that, and the other, $15 an hour, I'm down with you. But how can any of that be realized in the midst of a militarized nation? Can't do it. And I mean, Biden, I mean, the game is so obvious, the, the fakeness of the Biden game. I mean, to the extent that it is his game, he might just be, you know, going through the motions. But the game is solve the contradictions at home so that we can continue the war on China and Russia and the peoples of the world. He's a cold warrior. That's why, the, oh, I'm talking to him. That's why, you remember the Chinese diplomat, the foreign minister said to them, to them two uh, frauds that they sent over there. He said, man, you're dealing with a cold war mentality. You know, he didn't use my language, but I, I guess, you know, on the low, if they talking to each other, they say them lames, you know what I'm saying? A cold, what is a cold war meant? Anti-communism. That's what he was telling them cats. Oh, you still dealing with anti-communism and you can't deal with us like that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think also, also, con uh, also connected uh, to, sorry. You're sorry. Forgive me. No, no, no. Are you, are you done? I was going to say it connected also to that Cold War mentality that they're warning people about is this kind of 
you're with us or against us yes. anti-communism towards all the other countries of the world so Absolutely. and building these military blocks like we were talking earlier with the bangladesh thing about sito and cento and of course nato which is the worst of them all and so you're having nato return with a force that's part of the motive that's part of the strategy of biden revive nato build these new alliances in asia the quad the pivot to asia uh and basically try to sanction with sanctions and other things threaten everyone else in the world to stop using chinese technology stop receiving chinese investment yes. even break off any kind of positive or even just cordial relations with china or russia and uh you know which is going to spur a worldwide arms race basically absolutely yes yes so it's, and, and so it's all but it's all built on this thing of anti-communism basically mm-hmm. Uh, but bringing it back to Philadelphia, a question from or comment from Patrice. Uh, she says, uh, "The masses of poor people are caught between a rock and hard place because home ownership isn't accessible for all, especially if you're not making a livable wage. And renting, especially in Philadelphia, is more expensive than home ownership." Yes. Uh, Yvonne says, thank you, Catherine, for sharing all that history. Uh, Eric Hudson writes, Catherine set it to blaze with her gentrification report. In America, Black people lost 45% of our collective wealth at the bloody hands of Obama due to the corporate looting that was the mortgage foreclosure crisis. And in Chicago, when Clinton demolished CHA public housing on behalf of the Democratic city, one of the largest land grabs in American history. Over 200,000 families were permanently displaced after being promised a right of return. And they have been relocated to modern day Bantu states in deep areas of poverty, totally isolated from the city. This is nothing but hashtag ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patrice adds, when Hope Six was funded by HUD, it made way for gentrification to run rampant in urban communities. Yes, Fred Engels was correct when he posed the housing question. He posed the question to the ruling class, which he thought was responsible for providing housing when the shortage of housing for the proletariat becomes a problem. Uh, Vaughn Allen Goodwin writes, Tony, we have to get you in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> also shared their email said send me your contact info i'll share that with you after but you uh, or they also write communism is the only real ideological and disciplined resistance to imperialism there is no question i i well i'm sorry i don't don't i don't want to talk too much yeah mm-hmm. see and there you go here we'll be back to gorbachev you understand what i'm saying we can't forget the collapse of the Soviet Union and how that was carried out. Let's be for real, for real. Western intelligence penetrated to the highest levels of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. After Brezhnev's death, two people followed as the general secretary, the top of the food chain of leadership. Andropov, and he died within 18 months, and then Chernenkov, he died within a year. Now, wait a minute. Everybody just dropping dead? 
till you get to Gorbachev and then he unravels the whole thing with a bunch of, you know, oh, I'm a good guy, I'm a Democrat and all of that. No, they brought it down and, you know, just to tell, it's, it's unbelievable for us back then to have imagined it. I've only recently come to terms with it, but they have not done the same thing in China. And that's why that 18th party Congress in 2012, where Xi Jinping rises to be the leader, you know, it's a group, I mean, but he's, you know, was key. As they say, stop the madness. I'm back now, that type of thing. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's just that, whew, you got to dig what happened because once you destroyed the Soviet Union, you couldn't do a frontal attack because the Russians will fight you to the death. You couldn't go up in there. Hitler showed you that. You went up in there and you got defeated, right? So how do you do it? You know, you create a vast ideological Cold War attack upon them. You try to isolate them and try to, re but then, and no one saw it the sophistication of Western intelligence mm -hmm. to have penetrated the leadership of the Soviet Union. And once, and now, you know, the Putin, see, they can't trust the Russian people because they know that socialism is deeply rooted in their political hearts. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, Putin ain't a communist. Well, you don't know what he is. You did what I'm saying? He hasn't exposed himself completely. You know what I'm so you don't know, so you can't trust him. Like they say, don't, don't, don't know, don't tell, or something like that. <laughs> so they can't trust him. You know what I'm saying? He tried to, you know, to work with the West, and you keep jugging with him. I'm going east now. <laughs> you know, like like Sly Stone said, thank you for letting me be my own self. Again, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm back to who I am. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, well, this point about uh, Western intelligence is very interesting because in some ways, I think it's been uh, something that the West has really developed and perfected because in, in studying about the history of Bangladesh and Bengal, the Bengal region, as Meghna was saying in her presentation, uh, Bengal was the first place that the British established rule in the actually the East India Company um, established rule in the entire subcontinent. And the way that they did it was they went to war with the local ruler because at that time there was kind of a there was kind of a decentralized structure. So the Mughal Empire was technically like the overall rulers of the subcontinent, but then there was like a delegation to a local to these local rulers who are responsible for these regions so the the nawab of bengal they went to war with him but in in that battle it was a, bat a place called plassey the battle of plassey in 1757 uh one book i was reading it was saying that the nawab's army had was bigger than the east india company army was better armed than the Brit the east india company army but the east india company army had penetrated and bribed the, his commander-in-chief uh, named Mir Jafar. Still people in South Asia use the word Mir, like kind of like Benedict Arnold, Mir yeah. Jafar. They bribed him and he, he purposely lost the battle to the enjoy and they promised that they would make him uh, the, the Nawab instead of the current. So that's 
how they established the foothold. And then they had kind of just perfected it, these officials. And British are very proud of it. I mean, that we had these great, clever officials who were able to play people off each other and ultimately take power. But you see that, like you're saying, with the penetrating the Soviet Union. Uh, we were talking last time, Negno was saying about penetrating uh, the Indian government. And then, and then even reading about how Sheikh Mujib's death happened, penetrating his inner circle and his party leadership. Uh, and many, so many examples with Gaddafi also, they were able to get certain people with Saddam, with Iraq. In Iran they, and China, they keep catching people and executing them. <laughs> and Venezuela. And say, with the quickness. Right, 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 right. So, and Putin is a KGB guy, so I guess he knows how to run these kinds of yeah. operations and counterintelligence. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of very, it's basically doing foreign policy in a very, very unprincipled way. That's the thing. Using these very unprincipled means oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. to wage your foreign policy. Oh, yeah. um, and of yeah. course, they've done it domestically. I mean, uh, infiltrating domestic organizations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the uh, areas that we should pay more attention to is the role of the trader mm -hmm. in history. And it just took a guy like Gorbachev. I have no doubt in my mind that he was operating as an agent of the West. And um, it wasn't democracy gone wrong in the Soviet Union. You know, it was a, a move, a movement, a, a thing to bring down the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I mean, going back to our discussion on Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, how, how identity politics really excuses traitors, you know, and this politics of representation, it really does uh, I mean, you know, it really does get away from this question. There are traitors to our people. That's right. You know, and they must be exposed. That's right. You know, there's no sympathy for them. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, more comments. Uh, Vaughn Allen Goodwin writes, Philly under capitalism, like other communities, has seen houses snatched from homeowners. Also, mass incarceration and drug trafficking has led to vacant housing where structures that were once inhabited are now empty. We have either cheap built houses or talk or talk structure that are empty shells. Uh, Joe Bjorn writes, my classes on urban development used to call out China for displacing residents. Yes, people had to be moved to make room for infrastructure. But from what I understand, the Chinese government constructed completely new housing to accommodate the displaced residents. I don't think something remotely close to that happens in the US. When eminent domain is used, at best, the state throws some pennies at the people whose land has been taken. And thank you, Catherine, for connecting the anti-gentrification movement to racist and imperialist ideas. Right. Uh, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> His cause comment got a little cut off. Oh, thank you, Catherine, for connecting the anti-gentrification movement to racist and imperialist ideas. There definitely is much to learn about the future of cities and communities from countries with a history of peace rather than aspiring for this sterile dream of a walkable, dense, rental-oriented lifestyle. <laughs> uh, Emile Palmier writes, what is the point of a critique from inside of an empire that doesn't implicate the empire? Uh, what is the fate of people's movements? Would, what is the fate of people's movements 
which devolve from their international origins and their unified strengths towards individual deals? That is a good question to ask. Basically, those who are liberals and social democrats who are more interested in making these deals than standing for principle. Uh, Alice Klein writes, on the military recruitment question, I just drove through some of the poorest towns in upstate New York today and saw these shameless billboards. Images of crying women with the words, bankruptcy, we can help, don't get hooked, addiction help, and suicide prevention hotlines. And <laughs> on the backs, military recruitment. So they're aware of the desperate situation, but don't aim to solve it. Publicly aware that desperation is good for recruitment and unashamed of taking advantage of that. Domestic poverty and joblessness is great for the military industrial complex. That's right. Yeah, even in this chapter, what stood out was just the statistics that Du Bois lays out when he says 71% of, I forget the technical term, basically GDP, like economic output of the country, 71% goes into military and just 5% is gone into this big bucket of welfare, housing, education, um, things like that, very basic infrastructure, only 5% compared to 71% for the military. And it made me think about how Du Bois in the beginning of what we read today also talks about how most of the money going into research at these university centers is military. Right. You could basically say science is military and then even art, the way art has been gutted and just replaced by propaganda, a lot of it militaristic propaganda. It kind of made me think about how we talk about jobs and unemployment and then solutions for employment, how in some ways there's no such thing as the arts industry, XYZ industry, manufacturing industry. It's all just military industry. 71% um, is just military spending. And I, I feel like just those bare statistics just so struck me. And it's probably worse today than back when Du Bois was writing. Oh. Yes. Yeah, and then the other part that, that struck me too was the part about advertising. And like, yeah, I, I don't know, like part of it, it was just struggle just to read all of the zeros that were involved with how much money is. Yeah, I, was having, I was having some trouble with that. But um, yeah, I mean, it is like part, that's like the military, but then also the propaganda part of it. And people don't, I mean, people don't see advertising as propaganda, but it is. It's like propaganda for essentially, yeah, essentially like the big money interests that control the state and are the most interested in warfare as well, um, like waging war, whether it's against the Soviet Union or today against China and Russia. And yeah, I think that's the other part, which I feel like I'm only just starting to understand how, how much of an impact that that propaganda has on the consciousness of people. Um, yeah, whether it's with like the anti-Asian like violence thing and how swift that um, that sort of media like social media blitz has been and sort of um, as part of that like this to create this sense of like urgency about like a problem which should really be seen in a much different light, you know, like in terms of the overall crisis of violence and of unemployment and of um, yeah all of this all of this stuff. But yeah, I don't know, just how much yeah like the problem that Du Bois saw in his time has only just gotten I feel like magnitudes worse um 
like in the the time that we're living in. And also the way Du Bois frames it as just the irony or the terrible hypocrisy of all this money, the irrationality of all this money, all those zeros spent on propaganda, ideology, on military, just to keep the country together. Like, you know, keep people somewhat complacent, keep people like to have them think a certain way. All that money's just wasted on stuff like advertising. And it's, he frames it, he said it was like an unbearable burden on the nation. And it reminded me of that Paul Robeson quote where Paul Robeson was like, the problem with this society is when you put so much effort and energy into external things, like controlling things externally just to keep the country together, it creates a situation where inevitably an individual or the whole society has to commit suicide. It's so unsustainable. Um, and that's what we're seeing today. It's unsustainable. All this money has been put into advertising, all of this, but it doesn't solve anything for the long run. People are angry, upset, they're unhappy. Um, there's not just huge rates of individual suicide, but there's also, it's a certain societal atmosphere where the only salute, there has to be some sort of fulfillment of a solution, whether it's socialism, something's gonna have to happen. Uh, Emily, could you explain, you said, Robeson said that if you place all the emphasis on external problems and not the people, you said the society, he said the society commits suicide. Could you explain that? Yeah, I'm not, I forget the exact, I think he said it much better in his own words, but when I read it, I don't remember if he was talking about society or the individual or both, but he was kind of talking about white supremacy. This idea that whiteness, like the identity of whiteness is depends on another's degradation. Um, so when you're, when, whether it's society or an individual's identity is so concentrated on something externally, you have no choice but, or like if you, if your state of being or the state of society is so dependent on controlling things externally, whether it's foreign affairs or controlling people's minds, all of that, the individual or society has no choice but to eventually commit suicide because one cannot continue putting so much energy on the external. Wow, this Robeson thread is definitely one we should uh, we should get into in the future. Maybe we can get into that particular mm -hmm. essay or, or, or reading. But uh, for now, it seems like that's it for comments, and we're at past one thirty. So shall we? Well, could I ask um, could I ask Brandon Doe something? Sure. sure. I know, hey Brandon, I know one of your favorite singers is Russell Tompkins Jr. Is that true? True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the reason I bring it up is because um, we're talking about a certain form of presentation of art, of music, and I know um, you have been wanting to invite Russell 
to be a part of the free school. Have you made any progress in that regard? Um, I think Serafina had attempted to reach out to him through Alfie, um, but I'm not sure how that ended. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah, it's definitely something we can revisit. Because the reason, the reason I, I ask it is because, you know, the moral re-education of the society requires that we hear, people hear and children hear of things. Music is a powerful force. It affects the spirit, it affects the soul, you know? Uh, and I think Russell and the way he sings, as well as his lyrics, but the way he uh, performs things is such a gift. Uh, frankly, I think even a greater gift than he himself realizes. And I, you know, I've always felt that the free school uh, fits Russell so well. You know, my little knowledge of him and so on, just that kind of guy. I was hoping that we would be able uh, to get him to be a part of this. So to discuss, you know, how he sees art and music and how he performs it and what what he thinks his impact upon society is. <clears throat> I think that was that would really be amazing if we could connect with him because uh, I was just I was thinking also that I mean similar to what Catherine was saying about how there used to be a great peace movement now maybe in Philly and maybe you and Catherine are the are the last ones standing but you're still you're still struggling and we're kind of we're together I mean I'm saying it in the sense that we've gotten together and we're maintaining that struggle and you're also like sharing it with people who, who didn't experience it so i feel like in this time like what's needed is this kind of organization and collectivity of these people from the past who still have that history i mean that's what we tried to do with james lawson and oh, we yeah. tried with diane nash as well and so i think someone like russell Tompkins, and even i was i i saw that archie shep is still active and i shared one of he did a cover of uh sometimes i feel like a motherless child and other pieces. So these kind of people who live through this great kind of cultural period, artistic period, I think, as well as the people who, who are involved in political movements of that period, I feel like mm -hmm. it's important for us to connect with and kind of, you know, coordinate and, and uh, so that we can pass it on and, and keep it alive in this moment. Also, this moment needs, needs that kind of experience. But I, I think one of the great contributions of uh, Russell Tompkins Jr. and the stylistic is this great deep sense of like awareness, like self-awareness and sensitivity to other human beings. Yes. Like they do sing about love, which is like, I mean, unheard of in today's music and, you know, fighting for someone instead of condemning them. But there's also songs like people make the world go around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like for, you know, for, for the dream that we've been talking about to be brought into fruition, like you need people and people make the world go around. I mean, I think that in itself is really deep. And um, yeah, I mean, just thinking about the Grammys last week um, and how uh, Megan Thee Stallion, who is one of the rappers, female, black female rappers in the song WAP with Cardi B, 
um, she won an award for like best song or something like that. And Beyonce got on stage with her to congratulate her. And all over social media, um, you know, it's just people sharing that picture of Beyonce on the stage with her. And it's just like, I, where are the dissenting voices? You know, where are the voices who will say no to this? Like who will say no to the lowering of the standard of what it means to be a woman? And how like this culture doesn't teach courage or the moral imperative, but it teaches acquiescence um, and condemnation of those who, you know, question. And um, yeah, so I think, I mean, this, this human sensitivity and this, this feeling of tenderness that, you know, the stylistics bring, and I mean, Russell Tompkins Jr. Uh, can be a great contribution to the free school. And to the younger generation. And, you know, one of the things I don't, I don't think they know uh, that there are young people that highly value and appreciate them. It's no way they could know. And, and I think we have to uh, reach out and we have to encourage those who have the connection to help us make the connection because this is not a trivial matter. And I would, I would emphasize that the free school is not a trivial enterprise. And we're trying to dig deep into some cultural and social problems and find answers. Uh, you know, and you know, I, I think, um, yeah. I, yeah, that's, I mean, if you can make any headway, I would really encourage it, Brandon. One other person I would mention, I don't know whether this is maybe a long shot, Sonny Rollins, himself as a Buddhist advocate of world peace and all the other stuff. <clears throat> Yeah, I think we should definitely explore all these possibilities, especially hopefully as the uh, lockdown situation eases also. Yeah, yeah. I guess just one thing I wanna just uh, make everybody aware of, I think everybody in the free school is, you know, the health situation of Mumi Abu-Jamal uh, from all that I can gather is not good. And, um, I think he has the COVID virus plus uh, uh, heart failure and some other things. And, um, you know, I think he's close. I mean, he's in the best legal position he's been in in this whole time, but, um, but there are other variables and other conditions. Uh, so whatever we can do, to let our voices be heard on his behalf, we must. Yeah, Am Amadi Ajamu writes, culture, culture is a weapon. No question. All right. So on that note, shall we? We can maybe break for today. Yeah. All right. So uh, next week we'll be back, and uh, but we'll 
uh, summarize the rest of this chapter and summarize and maybe read some excerpts of the next chapter. Um, and then we'll also discuss where what we'll be doing after this uh, important study of Russia and America is complete. And uh, so thanks everyone for joining us today and uh, we'll see you next week.